Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, April the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I know you're waiting with bated breath about how my pea soup turned out. <laughs> Dave's laughing. Uh, in one word, delicious. Didn't have the adventurous spirit to make any dull boys. Apparently, they were quite easy, but I thought I'd limit my risk and just dole out the soup. But thank you so much for everyone who sent along all the recipes and tips and the like. Anyway, I know that's neither here nor there, but, yep. All right, congratulations, Cole Long. I remember watching Cole Long play high school basketball against my young fellow, Nick. He was a tremendous player then and, of course, continues to be just a super basketball player. He spent some time down in the United States going to the University of Detroit Mercy from 2016 to 2019, came back to play for Munn, a 6-foot-7-inch guard, no less. Last year at Munn, he averaged 20 points and 11 rebounds uh, per game, and he was uh, drafted by the Growlers basketball team third overall in the U Sports draft on Tuesday night. Bravo to Cole. It's always nice to have some hometown feel and flair on the local teams in the professional ranks. And, of course, when you're a young player like Cole, you always aspire to play some form of professional basketball. And I was going to be able to play in the Canadian Elite Basketball League. They kick off their season on the 4th of June at the Fieldhouse at Memorial University. So congratulations to Cole. He's a nice young fellow, too. So I'm sure he's absolutely thrilled. He says it's just surreal to be drafted to get to play a little pro. Good for you. All right, so I think it's a really wise move by the Growlers to have that brand extended from hockey to basketball. Share the same name, share the same logo, share the same colors with their kit. So way to go, Cole Long. Good for him. And, of course, the Growlers opened their playoff hockey series uh, Friday night at Mary Brown Center against Trois-Rivières. A lot of folks looking forward to it. And, of course, the provincial minor hockey tournaments continue uh, throughout this week. You know, good luck and safe travels to all hands. And a special good morning and bravo for those who are finishing their minor hockey careers. It's a bittersweet moment. I remember when it happened to me. It's just one of those things, right? Minor becomes a part of your life. And then all of a sudden, it's over. Not all of them will go on to play any junior or what have you. It might be the end of the road for their competitive hockey world until they graduate into the beer league ranks. But uh, good luck to all hands. And a great story come from Labrador City. The, the tournament that was scheduled to take place there, the under-18E provincial tournament, it was canceled, but a lot of public backlash meant that they brought it back to Labrador. So about 100 players and coaches uh, from all around the province have made their way to Labrador City to play at the Lab City Arena in this particular tournament. Obviously, the locals are thrilled. Some of the pitchers coming from that arena, stands are packed, people are having some fun, watching some minor, and of course... We wish them good luck, and it's good to see the provincials make its way to Labrador. All right, what is that scribble I got going here? Okay, a couple of quick notes. Today in history, in 1982, Raleigh Fingers, the mustachioed reliever Raleigh Fingers, one of the great soup strainers of all time, became the first pitcher to record 300 saves. So that was pretty cool. He was playing for the Milwaukee Brewers at the time. Played for three teams over the course of his career. Raleigh Fingers, if you can picture him in his mind's eye, in your mind's eye, he's really got one of the absolute greatest mustaches of all time. And this is an interesting one. It's hard to determine exactly when a city or town was founded, but today is the traditional date on which Romulus and Remus founded Rome, 753 B.C. 
Okay. So, good news to see that there's been a tentative agreement struck between Choices for Youth and the uh, nine people working at Lily, which is a housing shelter for vulnerable youth. So, NAEP has put that news out there this morning. Some of the details, of course, yet to be shared uh, publicly, but... Good news. It's important to get back into the lily and offer the programs and services for these young, young folks who are indeed vulnerable. The next step and next question will be, similar to how I think and talk about the chronically absent from school, is how and why these young people find themselves in a position to need these types of services. It's always going to be the case. But until we have a better understanding of exactly what went on, to lead them to the lily, to lead them to Choices for Youth, we just, again, deal with things after the fact versus try to make more focused attention on exactly why and how these things have happened in the past. But you want to talk about it. It's really good news, though. I'm glad to see that they've reached an agreement. The strike dragged on way too long. Just one second, sip of coffee. Okay. Some of it happens in school, right? I've never been able to firmly understand just how, when you reach the age of 16, you can make some lifelong decisions, including quitting school. We know what that means for your long-term happiness and prosperity and potential successes, meaningful, gainful employment, so that's one thing. But this is a tricky issue that was always going to be contentious and settled in the Supreme Court. It's about the school's that were formerly belonged to the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation and the land that they're sitting on. Most of the schools in the city are absolutely still owned by the RC Episcopal Corporation. And we know the consideration was selling churches and, yes, the protection afforded to cemeteries that won't be sold and developed upon. But the schools is a really tricky matter. So some 25 years since the denominational school system ended, the church has never been compensated for the schools or the land. But... This becomes a huge issue for all hands. It's all bad enough that the parishioners are on the hook for the evil behavior at, at Mount Cashel and the compensation that's absolutely due to the victims. So for them to see their churches possibly sold off from under them is a terrible sight. And I'm sure it causes lots of heartache for the parishioners who attend these churches. But if it becomes a case where the schools are going to be sold off, what does the government ha have to do here? I mean, it, obviously, you can't see the schools gone. You know, we can't see a school taken away and sold and maybe knocked down in condo development or something. The government says that the act protects these buildings because they're used for educational purposes. I guess we'll see if the Supreme Court agrees with the provincial government. But what happens? What happens if, indeed, the schools are put up for sale? You know, again, bad enough for the parishioners to be on the hook as opposed to the Vatican where the actual blame belongs. But now, what happens if it's the taxpayers in full that are on the hook here? To either buy the schools or to have to rebuild schools and what that's actually going to mean for the student population. I don't know where this is going to land. And hopefully the government is right in that the act does indeed protect these buildings from becoming some of the assets to be sold. Uh, anyway, I don't even know what that clause in the act actually says, but that's going to be a really tricky piece of business. Just imagine if all of a sudden, all of us taxpayers, citizens, someone asked me the other day why we refer to the residents as taxpayers as opposed to citizens. The only thing that I think I could point to is that when we're talking about who fuels the coffers, you know, who's responsible for funding all of our assets, whether it be schools and roads and hospitals and bridges and the like, well, that would indeed be the taxpayer. So it's not to just diminish us all to simply the bank for the government. That's just the hair that I split in my own mind when we go to speak about these things.
All right. So the whole word transition or just transition is really being bandied about all the time. But it means a different thing to different people. So whether it be the type of jobs that will be available in the future, whether it be government's reliance on royalties, for instance, from fossil fuels, it means something different to every single person. And we do need to see the schools and post-secondary institutions play a role in what the transition will look like. Because whether we like it or not, it looks like the sun is setting in the next couple, three decades-ish, whatever the number is, on the oil and gas industry. Or that's what it looks like. And it's certainly if the Liberal government of the day has their way, that's absolutely what's going to happen. Now, we did talk about yesterday that Minister of the Environment, Stephen Gibo, you know, reading between the lines, he says it's going to be an extremely difficult bar to pass for any future oil developments to be approved. Now, he does indeed pass the buck along a little bit to the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, which is where the Beta Nord... Uh, offshore oil field was evaluated under the past regime and parameters. They've been quite stiffened since 2019. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think that what the minister is saying is it's going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, if the liberals have their way for offshore oil development. We'll see. The debate inside the, the boardroom at Equinor to, you know, finally sanction the project, and we'll see where that lands. The first oil potential by 2028, that's what they say. But here comes an issue that was talked about when, the, uh, when Equinor first went out in the Flemish Pass and drilled for explore, explore, exploration purposes, is it's way outside the traditional economic protective zone of 200 miles. Now... There has been an agreement that allows Canada and folks in countries with larger than normal continental shelves to go ahead and extract oil beyond the 200 nautical mile limit. But under the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, there is also some concern with how monies will be paid to developing countries through royalties. This is a big deal. The squabble between the federal government and the provincial government will be the feds hanging on to say, well, if you're going to be the primary beneficiary, then you should pay these royalties, when in fact it wasn't Newfoundland and Labrador that signed on to this agreement, it was the country of Canada. So it's going to be the feds versus the province versus the Atlantic Accord. The Atlantic Accord is clear, is that the royalties flow to the province. But how this gets adjudicated in the racket, will there be a compromise, I suppose, but we're not talking about peanuts here. This is hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, for the first six years, there are no royalties to be paid, but kicking in in year six, 1% all the way to 7%, that's a big swath of money. So we'll soon see whether or not the Atlantic Accord is as firm and as, as concrete as it should be. Again, the province didn't sign on to that agreement. The country did. And then afterwards, we had an Atlantic Court, which has protected us to great lengths. So it's going to be a real test of the strength and the resolve of the province. The province says, we have no role to play in this one. This is the federal government that's going to have to pay these royalties, which will be uh, distributed amongst uh, some developing countries. But that's a big conversation. So whether we talk about the final sanction by Equinor or where the jobs will be on shore in preparation for production, and yes, the royalties and where they flow. I think it's going to be a big one. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? I don't see the uh, Christmas tree ringing here. Let's get going. Okay. Some scary stories all the time, and you hate to mix them in, but we've got to talk about the realities of what we see happening on the ground. This story coming from the West Coast, where there was a really scary home invasion. And this young girl, 
15-year-old. She was in her bedroom, and then all of a sudden, someone is approaching her in her bed, goes to put his hand over her mouth, and it was a stranger. So she pops up and runs, and the intruder flees on a bicycle. The young girl's boyfriend chases after him. And the mother goes on to say that what they really need to see is increased community surveillance. Okay. We do indeed have to look out for each other. You know, keep an eye on what's going on in your neighborhood. Sometimes a nosy neighbor can be a bit much. And people will say, you know, the very best neighbor is a tall fence. But sometimes the nosy neighbor is exactly the person we need to have an eye about, to recognize where someone is maybe doesn't look like they belong and they're casing the joint and they're prowling in the backyards what have you. So it can be very helpful. So I wonder what the, the world of Neighborhood Watch looks like these days. And it doesn't have to be formalized. You know, inside knowing your neighbor, meeting your neighbor, speaking with your neighbors, to know that people do indeed have your best interests at heart, keep an eye on the place. Like, for instance, if you're gone for the weekend or you're gone on holidays, and just to have a look over the fence to make sure that everything is safe and secure for your neighbors. But that story is really quite serious. You know, just imagine the fear and living with that fear for many, many days, weeks, months, years to come. So the call for increased community surveillance is, I think, a good one. And if you want to talk about how you proceed in your neighborhood or your community, that would be great. All right, uh, again, man, my handwriting is just terribly, it's where I was a doctor. All right, unfortunately, got to speak to yet another really unfortunate and scary story. And this is about, there was a couple of deaths that were suspicious that was reported last week, and it now has been ruled as a murder-suicide. A man in his 30s and a woman in her 20s. His wounds were self-inflicted. They were both brought to hospital with these serious wounds and both died the next day. It goes back to a call from uh, Helen Conway Ottenheimer, PC member for Harbour, Maine, you know, asking the government and the minister responsible, Pam Parsons, about a domestic violence strategy. These stories are just heartbreaking. And to know that there's so many of these incidents that go unreported to police, and we're way up there when we talk about provincial numbers in comparison to other provinces and territories. So that strategy has, you know, got to be beyond a living document. We've got to have some real public well understood details of what's going on and how do we tackle it. And yes, some of these conversations begin with their children when they're young to talk about respect and self-respect and proper behavior and the warning signs and how to see them and, and identify them and what you can indeed do about them. Now, it's a pretty tricky piece of business because there's a complicated matter as to why someone would stay in an abusive relationship. You know, people say it's just so cavalierly. Well, if it's dangerous, get out. Easier said than done. There could be all kinds of issues. A roof over your head, financial issues, children, pets, whatever. So there's lots of reasons and just general fear. Even sometimes I would imagine people think that just reporting these incidents maybe puts a heightened risk in place. So we do need to have public conversation about these things. We do need government to not just rely on things like the installation of a domestic violence hotline, which is a good idea. It's a step in the right direction. But more has to be done because these issues are far too commonplace in this province. And I know it's a tricky conversation to have, and it's a very emotional and a very dark conversation, but we have to have it. What do you think? Okay, for information purposes only. Yesterday when the province updated its COVID hub, there was 10 additional deaths reported since Wednesday or since Monday. That brings the total to 152, but 42 of them so far in April alone. 
There's 31 people in the hospital. Seven of those are in critical care. So our condolences to those who've lost a loved one and speedy recovery to those who are in the hospital. Okay. So a couple of interesting things on the federal or national stage. There's a protocol in place where travelers returning to Canada are being told now you have to wear a mask for 14 days. All right. Number one, it's not really worth the papers printed on. If people don't want to wear their mask with the mask mandates haven't been dropped, then they're not going to wear one. So there's no such thing as enforcement on this front. I mean, that's absolutely impossible. But it's a funny one that the government has now put out there, especially on the heels of dropping the requirement of a negative PCR test before return to the country, you know, to avoid self-isolation rules. Also, it is absolutely high time that we talk about the travel mandates and the restrictions. You know the deal. You've heard me say it before. When government puts forward a policy, they have to have a rationale as to why, to measure its success, and then understand when it comes to its natural end. Those who are vaccinated are vaccinated. Those who are not are not and will not and never will. So we have to talk about it because we can't be in the straight-up business of punishment here. Also, you wonder whether or not there's going to be a change in the definition of fully vaccinated because that will tell the tale for an awful lot of the things that are going on in this country and going on around the world. The definition continues to be two shots in the primary series. No mention of the third shot, the booster, or the fourth, when those who are vaccinated, by and large, have already received their third dose. So that's going to be tricky. We need to know if that definition is going to remain, and we need to hear the government justify as to why those mandates and restrictions for air travel in particular remain in place. Again, if you wanted to get a vaccine, you got one already. Those who will not and refuse to, for whatever reason, it's not going to happen. So let's be honest with each other and just go ahead and have that conversation about the, the merit of that particular mandate. Some people don't want to hear it, but that's it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openlineatvocm.com. But let's get a tune going. Today in 1979, moving from number eight to number three with Heart of Glass is the splendid Debbie Harry and Blondie. When we come back, let's chat. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Emailer is asking if I have a, a harder finals update, of course, for senior hockey supremacy. Sutter Shore Breakers uh, beat Clarenville last night 7-2. Take a stranglehold 3-0 series lead. So off to Clarenville for game four on Saturday night. Let's go to line number two to begin the program. Good morning, Doc. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. I am so angry this morning. I was having my tea listening to the VOCM news and I'm a senior, and I've had a knot in my stomach thinking about losing doctors, okay? And I listen to Dr. McDonald listen, list all of the communities that are losing a doctor within a month. And she, she sounded so smug as she was listing these communities. And all of a sudden, my head clicked, and I said, is this job action? 101, trade union tactics. I know doctors don't like to say they're in a union, they're in an association, but that's how it sounded. And, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it might be a duck. Like, if this is about wanting more money... But they just settled a contract, though. Yes, I know. I know, but what else would it be? I, I worked in, I'm retired, I worked in healthcare. The doctors never walked out in mass. Like, are they, how did they get so unhappy in this short bit of time? But 
the the attitude of of the the president was so smug and i was thinking in the 80s the doctors uh you know threatened strike and all that kind of thing but that's what it sounds like is this about getting back at the government and Peggy and wanting more? Like, well, I don't know how that would work. Just one second, Doc, because if they just settle their contract for the doctors that are currently working, and it would be nice to know what the breakdown yeah. is of the doctors, you know, how many are working full-time, part-time, teaching, yeah, here on sure. locums, what have you. But, yes. I mean, why would you think that this is some sort of job action issue when, of course, she's the representative, she's the president of the representative group, and yeah. doctors are telling us quite clearly that they are overworked, overwhelmed, their pay issue has been settled. They still have to work on some, you know, fee-for-service types of issues, but I don't know how this would be a job action issue. But now suddenly they're leaving in a month? There's a, she listed off communities that are lead, their doctors are, like, if it's, you know, if it's a ploy, a job action, fine, call it that. But I'm a senior with a knot in my stomach that we're losing doctors and I'm in an age that I'm going to need them. But this is so nothing new, though. Call it what it is. It's, it's nothing new. The issue now is just how difficult it is to replace a doctor, especially in some smaller communities. This is not new stuff. I mean, we're not, for the first time in our history, seeing doctors leave smaller parts of the province. Absolutely. It's becoming harder and harder to recruit them to smaller, but isolated parts of the country, let alone the province. But I don't remember them going in the numbers that they're going. Like, what's happened in the last few months that they're all gone? All on Matt? Well, she listed off the uh, the communities that it won't have a physician. And mm-hmm. it just seemed her tone she used just sounded very smug. And I, that's the first thing that clicked in my head was saying, is this about more money? I know they settled. I heard it on the news. But anyway... I'm a first-time caller. I had to call in and get that off my chest. I, I welcome the call. I, I don't, you. well, I mean, we all hear the news and comments coming from one person or another differently in our own heads. I completely understand that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think part of the issue we here is that, you know, they're being wooed by every jurisdiction across the country, around the world. They are in high demand. Add to the fact that we had an aging workforce across the board, and that includes medical professionals. So I think that is a contributing factor here as well. It's also one of the complications when we talk about mentorship for general practitioners, for family doctors. They have to leave to get that additional couple of years of mentorship and training, and if we have fewer doctors here to offer that, then what's the likelihood of someone who leaves for those additional bits of training to actually even want to come back? So I think we've got ourselves a complicated issue with they feel disrespected, they're overworked, uh, the pay issue has been settled, they're an aging workforce like everything else, and the attractive nature of other jurisdictions is really coming to bear across the board, and that includes with doctors here in the province. Uh, I appreciate your time, Dad, as a first-time caller. Hope you're doing okay. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. I just get another one going before we have to take our first break of the morning. Well, the Atlantic Boys Choir... They're heading to jolly old England. Join us on line number three is the founding co-artistic director of the Atlantic Boys Choir. That's Dr. Jakob Martinek. Good morning, Jakob. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So it's always a thrill for the Atlantic Boy Choir and the folks behind the choir to represent the country on the international stage. That's happening a little bit later this month in the UK. What's going on? Well, we are really excited to be a specially invited guest for 
the festival in Cornwall, which is the largest festival of its kind in the world. And I happen to adjudicate the international competition there, which is a part of my research at Memorial University. And I ask if I can bring a few boys with me. <laughs> so our concert choir will be there. Uh, we are leaving on Tuesday. Terrific stuff. So you say it's the largest festival of its kind. Some of the world-renowned choirs will also be there. So that just adds to the uh, the excitement that the, uh, the members of your choir must be feeling. Oh, they are really excited. And it really is a fantastic opportunity. Because of pandemic, they canceled uh, one of the years of the festival. And now they have absolutely phenomenal artists, including Watches 8, which is a really fantastic ensemble, and the Jazz World of Six. And our boys will have two workshops with uh, these two defined musicians. What does it mean for young members of the choir to perform in places outside of their own province, from outside their own country? Because, you know, you would think as performers, and I know this is not true, but people might sit back and think, well, a song is a song, a performance is a performance, but it takes on additional prestige and maybe additional pressure and or excitement when you get to perform outside of the country. Absolutely, you are right. And also, you know, it's getting inspired by other artists and by other influences. There is so much wonderful music being done around the world. And all those, there will be over 50 choirs uh, from around the world. Um, We will get to hear them. We will get to sing together with them. So that inspiration is is wonderful. And our boys are really looking forward, of course, to represent our province and Atlantic Canada, because we will also have their boys from New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, not only from Newfoundland. And the whole Canada, it would be just wonderful to represent what we do here. As the co-founding artistic director, the Atlantic Boy Choir was founded back in 2016. But the notoriety surrounding your choir and the, the trips you've been able to take and the, uh, the presence that you've felt on the stages in various countries around the world, talk about just how quickly the, the reputation of the Atlantic Boy Choir has grown. Well, we have a lot of talent here in this province and wonderful, not only singers, but wonderful music educators that are on board with this project that we started with my wife um, six years ago. And thanks to them, we are able to do what we do. And it really is exciting. It is, and boys deserve it. They work hard. Uh, We just had a retreat in central Newfoundland three weeks ago, and they are superb. So I'm really proud of them and look forward to see them, you know, on this international stage. How many members? We will have 20 boys, 20 selected boys um, going this time because um, we had a limited number we were able to bring. But um, there are other tours that will be happening that are planned for next year. But this will be... You know, really, it was kind of a last minute, but really extraordinary opportunity that we decided to take on. What do you say to listeners, families, or young boys, uh, singers, who would like to audition for the choir? What the public might be able to do to support the, the Atlantic Boy Choir? Well, we would love to have them. We will do auditions um, later in the summer uh, for the next season. And anyone who likes to sing is welcome to join us. Can anybody sing? <laughs> Everyone can sing. <laughs> you know, like for me, I I have a hard time hitting key, and many people say I can't carry a note, period. But I've heard many people say, 
that everybody can sing. It's just a matter of patience and trying and getting some tips and support from people like yourself. But not everyone thinks that. People, you know, might be afraid to sing anywhere outside the shower. No, it's, it's about the proper training and it's about feeling comfortable and feeling, you know, in a safe environment where you're not judged and everyone can sing. Uh, it's good nice to have you on the program this morning, Dr. Martinek. Uh, good luck and safe travels to you and the fellow members of the choir. Thank you very much for having me. Take good care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. As Dr. Jakob Martinek is the founding co-artistic director of the Atlantic Boy Choir. They have an extraordinary reputation and in very short order. You know, like many things in this world, we punch way, way above our weight in a variety of fields, especially in the arts. Now, I know we've got lots of great things happening in the tech and innovation and all sorts of different issues here in the province, but in the arts community, it's really quite extraordinary, and especially in the choral community. Cool stuff. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Whatever's on your mind, don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go line number one. Bob, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Morning. <coughs> Excuse me. Charles is going to go now, I think. Uh, Petty, I want to talk about oil. It's getting to be very important in the world now. Uh, let's see if I can put this together. If we banned Russian oil, the war could be over in short order in the Ukraine. Why would that be? Well, uh, the big, uh, big part of their economy is exporting oil, and uh, Germany buying oil from uh, Russia is financing the war. Well, the Germans are actually banning importation of Russian petroleum products, uh, and we don't import any Russian oil here in this country. But I don't know if banning the importation of Russian oil worldwide would bring an end to anything, it's because we're talking about an unpredictable, an unpredictable maniac who, who knows what kind of reaction they would have to that. I think the real trick is, like, I see one of the Russian oligarchs yesterday calling out Putin for this, what he calls the insane invasion of Ukraine. That's where you really hurt Putin himself. Hurting the Russian people, I don't think he cares a whole lot about that you know you got to hit him where it hurts and that's with his money and that's in the hands of these russian oligarchs as they call them so i'm not so sure the ban of oil is going to do much to bring this to a head well what about inflation uh, a little bit of a bad thing could uh, cushion inflation and that's destroying this part even uh, Putin said that, that the U.S. is only hurting themselves, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's a complete exaggeration that it's that thing and that only that's contributing to inflation. Um, and plus, I, I take with a serious grain of salt anything that's uttered by the Russian president at this moment in time. But inflation, if we're talking about around the world, and it's a curious thing because people are very quick to blame one politician or another for inflation when it's, if you look country by country on the inflation index, what it was in 2019 compared to what it is today, this is not a unique to Canada, unique to the United States issue. It's an absolute global issue. And inside of Russia, inflation is running absolutely wild. The ruble has been rubbled. It's worth nothing. So they've got their own problems inside. But that just leads me to, I think, further my opinion that it's not really a matter of caring for the Russian peoples by Vladimir Putin. It's caring about himself because if he really cared, I mean, the, the attack on the central bank of Russia and inflation and the value of the ruble, I mean, if he really cared and he saw an end, uh, an end game here or an off-ramp, as people call it, we would have taken it by now. But, Freddie, if you put oil on the market at a... Uh, 
the stock market, the oil price go down right away, just even on the rumor that it's going to happen. So, I mean, oil it does have a big effect on uh, inflation. If, if we put the oil on the market, the price of oil will go down to about 85 cents, what we're forecasting in our budget. Well, it's on a commodities market, but, I mean, and it's... <laughs> I'm not really sure exactly what to say about that. Is there a contribution about oil and global supply chain regarding oil that's contributing to inflation? Absolutely. Is it the be-all and end-all? No. Is it all about Russia's invasion of Ukraine? No. You know, there's a variety of issues inside of this. You know, it's a lot of money seeking very few resources is the number one key linchpin to inflationary pressure. But anyway. How did, how did the U.S. get oil how did the U.S. get oil reserves? I mean, they did a lot of fracking under Barack Obama. But what does that mean? How did the U.S. How did get oil get reserves? The reserves and their uh, security of supply. And when they release that on the market, it helps inflation and. Uh, well, it helps control a couple of things. It has it's had, at this moment in time, a minimal impact on inflation. Uh, it's more about trying to curb the rising costs of gasoline because they, I mean, they're one of the world leaders in refineries. So, yeah. And how did they get the reserves? Well, they have an emergency stockpile. It was generally for militaristic use, but that's long been a feature of uh, how the American government has created and protected their stockpile of oil. If we had the approach that you use our, use uh, the Newfoundland oil rather than, like it was a letter in the paper by a fellow, Mike Stokes, I think, okay. about Bunker C oil being used in the boats and uh, and the emissions in, into the air coming down on the ocean is what's causing all the problems on the ocean. <laughs> Again, there's a variety of different so if we had the approach where you could be using our oil or cleaner oil and use instead of, a, 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 you know, a coal, that's another approach, right? But, I mean, I those mean, things uh, are happening. The car, trying to uh, you know, bring about electric cars wouldn't have half the effect that that would have. So it's an awful lot of good that you can point out for oil and having reserved there's about half dozen things I pointed out we got going on now. We got the war going on, we got inflation going on, we got the virus going on, and you got climate change. I don't know which is going to destroy the world, but a little bit of, it's just like a little bit of the virus into your arm controls the, the, the bigger part of the virus. I'm not exactly sure and what that means. with oil, a little bit of oil used right. But it seems like we're going to have to fight the anti-climate people, just like we had to fight the anti-vaxxers to get the oil. And so people are hurting their own problems and hurting the world. Now, I've got to be a balancing act, haven't it? I suppose, but talking about... Prioritizing and... Yeah, but there are two different things, though, Bob. You're talking about people's own individual bodies and their health and welfare versus uh, industry. So, and, you know, people tell me all the time, why don't we use our own oil? I, I mean, I get that concept, but again, some of the same people who are saying that are the serious capitalists, and fair enough, but... 
we're also talking, you know, people say, why communism, that, that, that. That's actually going down that path. If we're telling the oil companies what they must do with the product that they pump, you know, that's the end protection. That's the, the, the state having control of the end result. But to the same people who are bawling about socialism and communism all the time, saying we should be able to tell Equinor what to do with the oil of Bailey Nord, I mean, really? I mean, we can negotiate some stuff on different fronts, but that's dictating to the Irvings or dictating to Equinor is exactly what people are belly aching about all the time, but yet they still say we should do it. I, I really have a hard time squaring that circle. That's why I asked, for how did, Barack, how did uh, Barack Obama get oil reserves and security of oil? He must have had to bargain with the... Some, uh, Barack Obama didn't go personally into the fracking. No, they gave approvals, and most of those are state approvals. Yeah, so how did they get their oil reserves? Couldn't we approach the oil companies now and say, look, we'd like you to double up on your on your oil and we either buy it or the, <coughs> or the states buy it or somebody? But I'm not 100% sure what that means, to be honest with you. Um, the federal government purchased the product to stockpile whether it be gold or oil or other minerals or seeds or things that the governments actually do to protect the possibility for it used to be militaristic action now it could be all, all kinds of things like even protecting the amount of seeds that you have is a strategic move that governments have made around the world because the unknown the unknown regarding droughts and fires and all these types of things so i think the governments take a similar approach to a variety of issues and it has a different impact you know gold which used to be the benchmark as opposed to the American dollar or seeds or oil, they all have different features and different impacts on whether it be the economy or the security of a country. But anyway, Bob, you can have the last word before I have to go. Yeah, I think uh, Biden and Johnson both approached uh, Trudeau about uh, providing oil. Because the Western world now, this is the biggest source of oil is off eastern Canada. And uh, uh, he, he, he refused. He said, I got climate change commitments. I mean, you know, so it seems like he's not cooperating, you know, more than Germany or any of those people are cooperating. I think they're different things, uh, to be honest. I mean, you know, people say, well, Keystone, buy Keystone, Keystone. Keystone was going to bring oil directly to the uh, Gulf Coast and export it. It wasn't for security of American reserves and security for American citizens at all. I just think that we we fall down the political rabbit holes where we let people tell us what we should be afraid of as opposed to what's actually going on and that really drives political conversation and it got us all in a big spin and a big tizzy when sometimes we're arguing about things that aren't even part of it not even part of policy not even the reality it's just what the politicians want want us to believe is what we're supposed to be afraid of all the time anyway i gotta get to the break uh, bob good to have you on the show hope you have a nice day Okay, thanks, Freddie. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. Uh, so you've heard way too much about my pea soup. And someone uh, said yesterday that we should maybe talk about some alternative forms of cooking and some healthy menu items and some tips that we can be sharing. Roger Andrews, he's a cooking instructor at the College of North Atlantic. He joins us right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, I, I said Roger Andrews is a cooking instructor, more accurately. He's a chef instructor at the college. He joins us on line number six. Good morning, chef. You're on the air. Hey, Patty, how's it going? Doing awesome. Uh, chef, chefs and cooks, that's a whole uh, a whole other uh, 
different uh, topic. <laughs> yes, it is. You, you got to be you got to be versatile in both in this industry. That you do, and there's lots of interesting things. And I'm glad that we're having these types of conversations because it's not just about pressure on the uh, on your wallet, but it's also about the diet that we know we don't necessarily make the best choices in this province. Let's start with protein. You know, people, many people, including me, when you talk about a source of protein, it's meat. There are some huge trends to move away from your source of protein being meat. What are you seeing out there? Uh, lo lots of uh, uh, move into the world of uh, uh, and, a, and a lot of marketing being done out in uh, Western Canada uh, and, and other places around the world about the use of like legumes and beans and 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 different kinds of bean uh, and and different e even wheat for example alternatives to protein uh, grains as your protein source more so than uh, than they used to be like uh, predominantly in, in cooking schools and stuff like that there's a lot of focus on how you cook the meat and stuff but there's a little bit more of a trend moving towards uh, a, a vegetarian-style lifestyle, not not exclusively for some people, but like my family, we try to have a, a couple meals uh, a month or, or, or every couple weeks where we introduce, like, say, uh, beans or legumes or quinoa and, and different things like that to get our protein sources that way versus uh, from the expense of meat products. So we'll, you know, generally rely back on how much things cost as opposed to dietary choices but give us an idea of a cost comparison because meat is extraordinarily expensive if i have a legume based or bean based meal quinoa or otherwise compared to relying on meat for my protein give us some idea what that's going to be the impact on my wallet uh, well, you look at you, you look at beef, for example. You you could be talking about a, a kg of beef, and it could be a random cut. Like obviously, you get your premium cuts, like your tenderloins and strip loins and things like that, that will be up in the uh, high twenties to high thirties per kg. Uh, and, and your and your medium and and cheaper cuts that could be in around six seven dollars a kg. Whereas you can get a kg of beans, uh, raw uncooked weight for probably a dollar dollar fifty, and then when you cook those those double and triple in size so in fact it's, it's not a dollar worth of kg of beans is actually 33 cents and i challenge anybody to try to eat a whole kg of cooked beans <laughs> it'd be pretty uh it'd, it'd be pretty challenging uh and and filling food right and and then you're eliminating a lot of the uh, fat content of that product you're getting healthier sources now one thing you have to do is you have to make sure that uh you have complementary uh products to go along with that because some, they're they're not complete amino acids so uh, sometimes you'll see beans and rice together uh, so that the two different uh, balances that you get your full protein sources from that. And that tends to be a challenge with people with uh, who, who follow vegan lifestyle and is getting the amount of protein they need and their B12s and all those things that come from meat. So it takes a lot of work and a lot of knowledge and a lot of uh, uh, education for someone to follow a very healthy uh, diet. And you, you talked about fat content. Sometimes yep. the flavor comes with the fat. You know, the marbling of the meat is a big, big component of the flavorful nature of eating that type of dish. And then for everyone a day, We'll talk about how we flavor up our meal around here. And many people still boil things until they're simply beige. And then we flavor things with salt. I mean, yeah. I use too much salt, I think. But there's other ways that are much more healthy and maybe even more flavorful than the reliance that we've had for a long time, salt and pepper. Yep. Uh, so there's there's a big uh, big push uh, by by a lot of restaurants now with the use of uh, 
uh, fresh herbs or different herb blends and stuff like that that uh, uh, that you can make yourself outside of the uh, the salt to to add in flavor. Uh, and in and the, 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 the true thing about salt is, although it's used for preservation of foods like we had with the salt cod and salt meat and all that kind of stuff, uh, it's actually a flavor enhancer if used properly. Uh, but there's other products out there like uh, acidity uh, through lemon juice or different types of vinegars. Uh, fresh herbs can enhance the flavor so it doesn't un- overpower it. Uh, and, and then actually how you would actually cook that product can also enhance it uh, without having to use like your traditional uh, Newfoundland style. Uh, everything is cooked with scrunchions or salt meat or like you say, boiled till beige. Uh, all, all those kind of things kind of... Uh, uh, kind of lend themselves to vitamin reduction in the foods and, and things like that and and then you add the salt in on top of it you you could easily get away with like a, a vinegar base or, or fresh herbs that will really brighten up the flavor of the food uh, versus overpower it with salt in the world of herbs we see you know a real move towards homesteading and a lot of backyard gardening but actually tend to a herb an herb garden it's a little easier than people think and you know some of the herbs that you might go to the grocery store and rely on their service or offerings a lot of these things we can actually do here sometimes people say well there's only half inch of topsoil and you know it's really not for me and it takes too much effort what does it look like to actually grow your own herbs Oh, man, it's, it's super easy. It could literally be a five-gallon bucket with a bit of soil in it, and you get some herb plants. And, and like, for example, like uh, I, I do uh, – I have a, a community garden uh, up on Mount Sio Road there, and uh, I'll, I'll grow my rosemary in time in the summer, and then I'll transplant it indoors until it actually uh, – and, and it stays alive in there. So it essentially uh, goes all year round that I'm, I'm using fresh herbs from the garden kind of thing. And then if they start to go, you can dry them out and use them in dry form so there it's it's fairly easy a little bit of water uh feed it once in a while and, and it'll usually flourish in this environment uh in, in the summer times yeah i actually do a bit of countertop or you know some cilantro basil going now on the countertop in the kitchen and we're yeah. going to move towards maybe exactly what you suggest we've got a uh one of those rectangular looking flower pots that you will see on maybe the banister of a stair rail uh, yep. that is going to be an herb garden this year no petunias it's going to be all herbs which i'm really much uh, looking forward to rosemary i think is something we're going to go for for sure uh last word roger give the folks a tip for something to make tonight and you mentioned the kind of beans i think you said lentils was there any other bean that you threw into that conversation uh, you could use part again. Chickpeas tend to be a very uh, popular one, yeah. uh, and, and a lot of times you look at uh, healthy kind of foods. You move into like uh, a lot of the ethnic cuisines and stuff like that, and and the different types of cuisines around the world, like different curries and and uh, things like that. So anybody kind of looking for that kind of avenue to cook, look to uh, 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 your different dishes from India or South America and and places like that, uh, where there might not be a big prevalence of meat or for ethical or religious reasons or whatever they may not be eating a lot of meat uh, or it could be economic uh, costs or health reasons or whatever so so look to those kind of recipes and play around with stuff what's the worst thing that can happen you make it you eat it once you don't like it you just don't make it again exactly roger great to have you on the show i'll be reaching out again in the near future for a chat no worries sir anytime how was the pea soup after good delicious i <laughs> don't mind saying <laughs> all right perfect thanks a lot man Take care. Let's see if bias. Roger Andrews, he's a chef instructor at the College of North Atlantic. Quickly, before we get to the news, we're joined by the Director of Nursing at Parallel Health on line number four. That's Paul Hickey. Paul, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to do it. Um, Yes, like I said, I'm the Director of Nursing at Parallel Health. We are a new clinic that's recently opened um, at 27 Roman Street in Churchill Square. 
the reason for the call today is I've been listening to kind of the demand from you know the members of our province and and the the health authority for the need for uh, medical practitioners, so family doctors, nurse practitioners, um, and kind of the the shortage that the province is facing. Um, so I'm just calling um, because here at Parallel Health, we do have nurse practitioners on staff um, with uh, appointments uh, starting as early as this Saturday. Paul, you know, there's an issue out amongst the general public where we've had this long reliance on the white coat doctor, and maybe there's a lack of understanding exactly what a licensed practical nurse or a nurse practitioner can actually do. Give folks some of the broad strokes of some of the cases that you see and things that, you're, that you offer inside your clinic. So I won't speak too much on the full scope of a nurse practitioner sure. because I'm not a nurse practitioner. I'm actually a registered nurse. Um, but yeah, so nurse practice, there is kind of a push now for um, more nurse practitioners in the province. Um, and nurse practitioners can do, you know, a lot of the same services that, you know, your um, family GP can can do. So, um, you know, physical exams, uh, prescriptions, those sorts of things. Um, so that's kind of the, the services that um, that our nurse practitioners here in the clinic um, offer. So we have a, a one of our nurse practitioners specializing in women's health um, and, you know, narcotics, uh, all types of prescriptions, physical exams. Um, yeah, so basically the same as, uh, not the same, but similar as your GP. Uh, give folks some, uh, some contact information. This is fee for service though, right, Paul? It is fee for service, um, so it is $50 per appointment. Um, but I mean, with the with the demand that we're that we're seeing and and, and the need for for practitioners, if you know if people are are um, able to and and willing, um, we are here at 27 Roman Street in Trickle Square. Um, our telephone number is 757-3525. Uh, and they can visit parallelhealth.ca. Um, that's our website for more information. Appreciate the time this morning, Paul. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Paul Hickey, Director of Nursing at Parallel Health. It might be an option for you if you've been waiting for an appointment, scrambling from clinic to clinic, and you do indeed are willing and wanting to pay a $50 fee to see a nurse practitioner, then that's available for you right there in Churchill Square. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, how are we doing out there, Dave? We're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. David, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, Colin from Marystown. Welcome to the uh, show. I wonder if you could explain something to me. Uh, about a year and a half ago now, uh, or so, uh, somewhere around there anyway, uh, when the pandemic was at its uh, top level, I'll say, uh, we had people dying one or two a week, and Fitzgerald and Haggie and uh, Fury were on every day, and they were telling the people to stay safe, and Fitzgerald, she'd have her little cry afterwards, and Haggie, to give his little speech. So how did we get from there to 10 people dying a day and we're all worried about is getting rental cars for a come-home year? Can you explain that to me? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a pretty broad generalization that all we're worried about is rental cars. What leads you to believe that's all anyone's worried about? Well, there's nothing locked down. We were locked down when one or two people were dying. We were locked down two Christmases in a row. Not and really. nine chances of, What? How, how was anyone locked down? We never had no lockdowns in, Mar- in Newfoundland. What kind of lockdowns did you experience? 
lockdowns. Uh, we wouldn't allow it in the, to bingo halls. We wouldn't allow it in the churches. We wouldn't allow it in the hospitals without certain regulations. My God, Patty, you, could, you couldn't have been in Newfoundland if you don't know we didn't have lockdowns. I think people exaggerate what a lockdown means, but anyway. Um, what? Well, yeah, you heard That's me. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. My God. I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave that alone. Um, okay. Do you realize that people lost their family members, some family mem members during the last two or three years because of mental disorders and suicide because of this? Uh, that's another one I think that we should be really careful when we talk about those types of things because the actual facts of the matter are suicides are down in Canada and have been for two straight years. So I'm here, Patty. Suicides are down in Canada for two straight years. I, I don't know what else to say. Those are actual facts. Uh, and I, I know people are quick to say, you know, look at all the mental health issues. And you're absolutely right there. Our mental health has been strained to the maximum over the last number of years based on whether it be the pandemic or other pressures. But suicides are actually down. So it, it's never great when we throw that around as, as carelessly as some people do. And the issue now with the numbers of people is straight up the numbers of infections. You know, so even if 1% of a 1,000 people uh, die because of the virus, that's 10 deaths. So we have so many people that have been infected with a highly contagious strain that it just stands to reason that more and more people will die given the fact that more and more people are infected. So how do you explain that to the families that the people are dying? Oh, uh, we'll, let her, we'll leave her wide open, come on, come home for come home year, we'll have a dance and sing, and uh, who dies, uh, dies, and who lives, lives. I, uh, by the way, Patty, I'm, i got to tell you, you already know this anyway. I'm not vaccinated. I had two heart attacks. I had two assistants. I had open-heart surgery. I'm not going to be vaccinated. So that guy, Bob, that was under comparing oil to uh, anti-vaxxers, I hope he didn't stay awake last night uh, trying to make up uh, his, uh, his scenario for that because it's absolutely stupid. Okay, so David, which is it? You think more restrictions should be put in place because of the numbers of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, or not? If it was good back a year and a half ago, and we lost two Christmas in a row, we wouldn't allow them in homes to see our families. We were turned away from hospitals because we weren't vaccinated, and people were. Believe me, people were. I know them. I can give them the call if you, if you want me to. People were turned away. So was all that for nothing? Was it a joke or what? No, none of this has been funny. So uh, just so I have a clear understanding here, you think the restrictions should be put back in place or no? If it was good enough then, it's good enough now. If it wasn't, if it's not good enough now, it shouldn't have been good enough then. But then, but then was then. Then is done. So give no, it's not done, Patty, because it scared people for life. Okay, so should restrictions be put back in place or not? Peggy should, and the Fitzgerald should be part of the boat, throw it for the towed it for the narrows, and the rope cut, let go. They done nothing for this province, only misery. Misery. So should the restrictions be put back in place or not? Because you're, you're trying to have it both ways here. So if it was good no, then... What? I'm creating a scenario. I'm saying if it was good enough then, what's the difference now? That's the question I asked you. I think it's because of exactly what you're pointing to, is that if people were strained and stressed and jobs were lost and uh, finances were in trouble and people were clamoring to get back to some sense of normalcy. So I assume that's a big part of why restrictions have been dropped here and right around the country. So, again, should they be put back in place? Because I, I'm not sure what the point is you're exactly trying to make. But you're, not, you know, you're trying to create your own scenario. But my scenario, scenario is a year and a half ago, we were locked down when one or two people were dying every two weeks. 
Today, there's 10 and 15 dying every two weeks, and everything is fine. It's the flu now. Go to the drugstore, get your ibuprofen, get your uh, Tylenol, and uh, just relax. Don't worry about it. We got lots of caskets. Don't worry about nothing. Okay, so don't you think that some of the public health policies reduce the number of infections, consequently reduce the number of hospitalizations, and, and possibly reduce the number of deaths because of all those restrictions that were in place? Uh, they're not doing it now. If I get on, uh, there's nothing changed for me, Patty. I'm not vaccinated, okay? Yeah, I know. I can't get on a plane. There's 200 people on a plane, and they're all vaccinated. 100 got COVID. I'm there without COVID. Who's in danger? The 100 people with COVID or me that are not vaccinated don't that don't have it. Who's who's in danger? I don't know. If you listen to the show, I think it's pretty clear that I've said repeatedly that the, the time has high come to talk about whether or not the mandates are required any longer because David is not going to get vaccinated no matter what. And Never. so if we're at that stage, because those who want to be vaccinated are, those who don't aren't, and that's not going to change. So we should absolutely be talking about whether or not the mandate is required, fair, or simply just a, a form of punishment at this time. And I've, I've said that repeatedly, so I'm not sure what else to say. Do you think that don't have an effect on my mental health to know that I can't book a plane trip or I can't do things that, uh, say, my brother can do because he's vaccinated? I would imagine it does. So that's what I'm saying about the mental stress this is causing. Not about the person who's uh, uh, who can't get a blood work for six and eight weeks at a time because they're, the healthcare system is, is so, so snarled up it'll never be straightened up no more. They can't get uh, procedures for cancer. I know there's a person waiting five uh, weeks to get an appointment for a scan. He got cancer. Does that make sense? He's gonna. A lot of people are going to die. And you wonder why the doctors are leaving? No wonder the doctors are leaving. I wouldn't want to be a doctor. And you tell me that that's not having an effect on the nurses' mental health when they I, know... I never said that, David. No sense trying to put words in my mouth. It's, it's a fool's errand. Tonight. I'm just asking you a question. Do you think that it has a mental effect on a nurse that feels helpless because she can do nothing or they can or he can do nothing what do you think of course that's right that's what i'm that's what i'm saying i'm not mad at you or not uh not, well, it doesn't uh, matter if you are that's neither here nor there for me it's no big deal no, I'm, no, big no. Boy. I'm, just, I'm just talking to you as a as a host right yep so don't uh, uh things is not the fall of the year you can. Uh, I'll call you back again to fall. I won't call you summer, but ninety-nine <laughs> percent chance we're going to be locked down again to fall for Christmas, because that's Trudeau's punishment to get the vaccines into people. He's a salesman. He's a vaccine salesman. He's an idiot. Yeah, but, true, about, but the prime minister, hit, prime but, minister didn't lock anybody down in this province. If you're talking about travel mandate, that's absolutely a federal thing. But public health policies and restrictions and quote unquote lockdowns have been provincial decisions. Yeah, and he goes hand-in-hand. They skip it, they do die day. But there was also these types of restrictions in Alberta and Ontario. Yeah, here you go. And Doug Ford is another puppet for Trudeau. Really? He's talking about sending the heavy artillery now over to Ukraine. What's he going to send over, Patty? Horseshoes? No. That's all we got. That's why we're in NATO, because we can't protect ourselves, because we don't have anything. NATO's a defensive alliance. Um, we're a pretty medium-sized, soft-power country. You know, all of a sudden there's more 
attention given to military spending and hitting 2% of GDP, as you know, the NATO members of some 30 countries have agreed upon. We haven't done it. Even the increase this year just brings us to 1.5%. But it, it's, it's funny that all of a sudden, like Doug Ford is a Trudeau puppet. <laughs> I don't know how that all of a sudden. I don't became. know, but uh, well, I know that uh, that uh, he's been uh, tougher on restrictions than uh, a lot of other places for sure. They had some pretty devastating numbers there for long stretch in Ontario. Yeah, but devastating population too compared to Newfoundland. The population is what projects the number. Uh, what projects the numbers, Patty? Mm, well, I'm not so sure that's actually the case. And population density has been an issue where. I don't think that's really been the be-all and end-all. Just look at the per capita numbers here. Infection rates here in this province, given our very small population, just over 520,000, we, you know, we've said we've been very safe, and we have. In large part, we've done very well. The 152nd death was reported yesterday, which is sad news for all involved. Of course it is. But, you know, whether or not people think any of the public health policies have worked, individual responsibility has carried the day. And it's not one thing. It was all things. It just was. It was all things that was part of protecting the general public, and that's where it kind of gets lost in the shuffle, too. It's a public health. It's not just individuals and what they want and what they need and what they demand or what they will refuse. It's about a public health issue. That's how public health policies are created. Uh, anything else, David, before I take a break? Do, do you think I'm irresponsible because I'm not vaccinated? No, you do what you see fit for your own self. That's right. Because I've been through more health crises than uh, than a lot of people will ever go through, but I know when something is good for me and not good for me. You can and make my your own personal decision. This is not good for me. I've never said anything different. People will decide what they want to do for themselves regarding their own health. Absolutely. Yeah, but anyways, I want to say and uh, have a good day and thank you so much. Take good care, David. Thank you. Alrighty, bye bye. Uh, well, I'll take the break here, Dave. Let's do that. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Marie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Long time, no chat. Welcome back to the show. Do you know who you're talking to? Uh, is this the lady that uh, would give me her time for calling children kids? You're a kid. <laughs> now you know, don't you? I got it. Yeah. You know something, Patty? That previous caller that you just had... I wonder where did they did they go to Yale or you or Harvard? I don't it know. Seems to know it all. Well, I mean, people have their own opinions on these issues, and that's just yeah, part of what makes the world go round. But the bugs the daylights are to me, it certainly does. There's something else I got to tell you. I have my oldest granddaughter. I should say our oldest granddaughter is a doctor, an MD. In case anybody don't know what that means, is a medical doctor. Uh huh. She's not allowed to treat any of her close family like us. We're her granddaughter. We're her grandparents. She's not allowed to treat any of us. Yeah, the radio is kind of fooling us up, I think, a little bit. Oh, hey, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, she's not allowed to treat any of her close family. So you talk about having a family doctor? Yes. You get me drift. She's not allowed to treat you. No, no, not close, re- not close relatives, and we're her grandparents. No, she's not allowed to treat any close family mel- me- uh, Oh, you know what I'm trying. Sure, but close I didn't know that was the case. members. Yeah, okay, I didn't know that was the case. Yep, it is. So they are. Okay. So you talk about having a a family doctor. No, that's the reason I says 
I hears people talking. I wonder how they gone to uh, Yale or Harvard. Oh, it makes me angry, Patty. Yeah, I choose not to get angry uh, because it's a really exhausting emotion, number one, and then it's hard to recover uh, for the next call, regardless of what the issue may be. So I just try to take it all in stride. But you take people that are listening to it that, oh, see, I'm losing it again. It, it, it does. It, it makes me angry, Patty. It does. Well, hopefully you'll be able to shed that uh, anger here now after our chat this morning, Marie. Uh, anything else you want to say before I take a call? No, my darling. That, that, that previous call that you just had, he's talking and talking and talking and talking. I said to myself, I wonder, did he go to Yale or uh, what's the other one? Harvard. I'm, I'm not sure uh, what his uh, educational background would be, but his opinion, like anybody else's, is his uh, welcome on the show for good or for better or worse, whatever it takes. Nothing we can do about it, is it? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to try either, because if I was just cherry-picking opinions, then the show would be probably less than what it is today. Marie, I appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too, honey. Take you care. Too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's go to line number three. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'll say it to you for the 10th, 11th time. Uh, you got great patience anyway. <laughs> you got to have it. I, uh, I want to start with uh, just a couple of uh, uh, gardening tips. Sure. And, uh, I had a, a little thing with, with, with a weasel or a stoat, a stoat this morning. On gardening, uh, I, I'd advise people with the price of uh, fertilizer going to go to uh, you know where and uh, food prices uh, as well. Uh, they might try a little backyard gardening. It, it can save you a few dollars. And uh, with fertilizer, there's lots of local stuff around, kelp and so on, right? Sure. Uh, when, we, when we lived in Alberta, we had a massive backyard, and we did plenty of gardening. We'd have four or five different kind of crops going into the backyard. A little bit tighter quarters here now living in the city, but we're at least going to establish more herb gardening. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, cabbage, just a little hint. If you grow it in buckets, five-gallon buckets, fill them with uh, three-quarters with kelp and then soil, uh, you can take your cabbage in in winter and put it in the basement, and they'll stay fresh because it's hard to keep cabbage. That they, 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 They'll stay fresh uh, all, all year round. Uh, Garlic, if you sow in the, in the fall as opposed to in the spring, you'll uh, you'll get better garlic. But anyway, I was trying to trap a rat that got got in our cellar that, that, that we installed their uh, root cellar. Okay. And I got a mink there two or three uh, weeks ago, and it, was, it completely filled the, the the little trap. Uh, it was dead, unfortunately. And later I got a, I got a weasel, a small one that was dead. But this morning uh, I, I went down, hoping to get a, the rat, and a bigger weasel was in a sto- stoat, I suppose is the right word, an ermine. It was colored white and brown, and uh, it was very much alive. So anyway, I just released it. But uh, they're around. You don't see them, but uh, they definitely are around, you know. Oh, yeah. Are they ever? The city of St. John's is overrun. Yeah. Anyway, um, I was calling about two or three things there. Uh, we all, uh, it seems like a lot of callers get down on government with the increased taxes on, on gas and so on. The real culprit to me is uh, 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 are the major oil, oil companies that uh, they, I think Exxon this year is due to make $21 billion or something, and some of the others not quite as good as that, but way up in the billions. There's definitely gouging uh, 
going on. They're taking advantage of shortages and so on. And I think people should focus a little more on uh, on corporations as opposed to governments who are basically trying to get by with uh, deficits every year, you know. You get uh, uh, Dennis O'Keefe on uh, who wants corporate welfare for, for oil companies all the time, and... Uh, I'd like to see that phased out entirely. If they can't make it on their own and make profit, which they can, uh, why the heck do they do they need our money, you know? But anyway. Well, they, they scare the provinces and countries into subsidizing because of the threat. Well, we'll just do business el- elsewhere. When, in fact, if we have the product, they will come. Uh, subsidies for those types of corporations just have to stop. They, they simply do. And, you know, people will say, well, it's the oil business is not subsidized. It absolutely is. And yeah. that's monies that I think are ill-spent. And you're right, uh, ExxonMobil, I think in 2021, just to pick one company, and they're not even the most profitable oil company in the world anymore, they did about $100 billion in revenue. And I think the company's profits were $23 billion. Yeah, yeah. So they're not crying all the way to the bank. And, you know, again, I'll throw this out there. I've been told I'm quite wrong, but I don't think I am. Given what's going on with inflation, and we've got to stop pretending that we have all the levers that we can pull here in just one country and all of a sudden we solve the inflation issue. It's just not as simple as that. But when we have some of the dishonest rhetoric going around regarding inflation, companies see it and hear it. And all of a sudden, their profits are skyrocketing. North American corporate profits are at a 70-year high. And now we have the inflation conversation going on. And what's happening? Their profits increase, but so do the prices. So we're kind of you know playing right up to their needs. They hear the conversation. They know it's easy enough to say, well, inflation. And so consequently, the prices are up. But boy, their profits are up too. So we we should be keeping a mindful eye on what's going on outside of the to and fro, the thrust and parry of politics. Well, cor- corporations, to, to me, capitalism has run amok. But any, anyway, I'd like to end off with the, the U.N. Secretary General was on there just a few days ago. And he basically said uh, the record of governments throughout the world regarding reduce and reducing carbon emissions as shameful. He said uh, we we basically promise at these conferences to do such and such a thing, and uh, we 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 fall down all governments uh, as soon as the conference is over. But anyway, I don't see Patty. I I I feel we've passed, as I've said to you before, the critical point. Uh, uh, definitely that the temperature will rise. I'm not saying we should quit our efforts to to keep carbon emissions down. But if you look at uh, just some of the basic industries, flying, uh, shipping, shipping, they use bunker oil. I read uh, somewhere a few days ago how many cars would have to be taken off off the road to uh, to, to make up for the, uh, the bunker oil that uh, ships uh, use w- worldwide. And uh, but that depends on the, it depends on the ship and the company and all those types yeah. of things. There's a real move towards cleaner marine fuel. There's actually the electrification of ships that's actually happening right under our, our eyes too, where they run a hybrid system. So, you know, the two biggest contributions to greenhouse emissions in this country, fossil fuels number one, number two transportation, and that is 26 percent followed very closely by 20. So while we always look at big industry, we actually have a car-friendly, car-crazy kind of culture going here that's going to be really difficult to change. Now, it's not all going to be the be-all and end-all of hybrid vehicles or electric vehicles, you know, because some of the transportation world, it's not ready for that yet. Just look at the agricultural sector, which is its own contribution to greenhouse gas emissions, including the machinery that they use. So it's a big, big, complicated issue that sometimes we boil 
boil it back down to, well, the world needs oil. You know, I don't know how that's the conversation starter, but anyway. Well, the point I'm trying to make is these changes that we need to to, to, to make in, in, in shipping and flying and, and producing of coal, needing of meat, we've uh, destruction of rainforests, burning them and so on. We, we've uh, uh, scratched the surface in terms of uh, reducing carbon emissions, and we just don't have the time to, to, to make these changes. Uh, you, you talk about electrification that of, of ships and so on. These are things that are starting, but they're, 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 they're they're way too late and way too small to make a difference to to what's happening on this planet, and that's what the UN Secretary General was talking about. He's really you can tell you could you could, you could sense the frustration in his words, right? We just don't have it to to, to change the the lifestyle that we're uh, that we're in, you know. But anyway, yeah. Well, the we as a country talk huge smack uh, about that issue, but uh, emissions are up. So yep. you know, uh, and talk and is talk right? and walk is walk. It's the same in, in, in most o- other countries. In fact, in Germany, they've increased coal production. And uh, in, uh, in China, that's, that's gone up as well. They've, they've reneged on all their promises. So basically, we don't have a chance, uh, 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 Patty, but uh, not to negate all the efforts that, w- that we have to make. But anyway. Well, the, you know, again, we don't need to look too far afield. Just about half of the electricity produced in the province of Nova Scotia is from coal-fired generation. So we've we've got a, a knack for saying the Chinese this, the Russians that. Yeah, yeah, when yeah, our neighbor, our closest uh, neighbor uh, yep. to the west, is about half the half the power is coal-fired. I mean, so would, you know. Anyway, would anyway. they buy would they buy wind power from us if we add it at a reasonable rate and get rid of the coal? Do you think? Well, they're trying to replace some of that coal fire with the deal they struck to build the Maritime Link and some 20, 22% of the hydropower and first-rate refusal on any excess power that they want to buy at market rates, so says their regulator, the UARB. So so why aren't they producing? Uh, I'd like to ask uh, Bruno that. Why aren't they producing? He's always saying we, we, we should get wind power g- going here. Why isn't Nova Scotia uh, in, into that more? They surely have a little bit of wind up there, do they? Yeah, of course they do. Uh, you know, onshore and offshore wind is a proximity issue. The whole business about the amendments to Bill 61 in this province, I'm not really sure how that works. You know, the exportation of wind power is a transmission issue. What's really probably going to happen, or most likely to happen, is wind power as it pertains to hydrogen and export, as opposed to building transmission lines from offshore wind farms in Newfoundland to power who? Because it won't be on island, I mean, because we've got to deal with the big bill that we owe on the Churchill River. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen there, but I imagine it's more about hydrogen than wind power for electricity. So so, so why haven't the, 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 the Nova Scotians invested more? Oh, I don't know. I can't answer that. that I don't know. Uh, coal, rather. I really don't know. Okay. Okay, thank you, Patty. That's, that's, that's about it for me. Uh, pre- appreciate you taking the call. Appreciate the time, Charlie. All the best. Okay, okay. So, bye-bye. bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. All right, let's try line number seven. Paul, you're on the air. Oh, hello, uh, Patty. Hello. Anyone, buddy, how are you? Uh, I got a letter, uh, I I phoned you a few times over the last several months about different issues. This one here now pertains to uh, fire regulations in my building. Uh, I got a letter, as all tenants did, St. John's Regional Fire Department, Fort Fort Townsend. Uh, Basically, this letter was about doormats, footwear, footwear trays, anything like that is not permitted in the hallways and shall be removed. It can be a potential uh, tripping hazard. 
In the interest of fire and life safety, we trust that all residents will comply with the provisions of the Life Safety Code and remove all such items. Now, that's not a big deal, Patty, so we took care of that. Now, there are still some tenants that haven't taken theirs in, but that's on them. But I got to thinking that they're sending around, and actually, Patty, that was actually directly from St. John's Fire Department, not, not the landlord. Um, from the fire inspector. Can I say her name because it's on the papers, okay? Well, I think it's probably public knowledge who the inspectors would be, yeah. Uh, fire inspector Cara Purdy. Okay. Directly and she'd be just representing the actual policy of the department as opposed to just her decision. But anyway, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, and uh, so that's fine. That's fine, Danny. So it's no big deal. But then I got to thinking, well, here they are sending out letters about mats outside of our doors. And uh, I got to thinking, Patty, that several years ago now, this is going back a few years, on here and now, uh, CBC here and now, um, Debbie Cooper, she made reference to the fact that uh, in every household in the province now, there's to be a, a smoke alarm installed in every bedroom. And I got to think, well, why the heck are they sending out about floor mats outside the door when there's supposed to be a smoke detector in every bedroom and in every dwelling? So I, I happen to uh, get the info off the online about that. I'm and, sorry, uh, what's the connection, though? We're talking about well, uh, access and safety for the firefighters versus protection of your own well-being and life. Well, that's, that's, just, that's what I'm leading to, see, because, uh, okay, go ahead and take the mats away from your door so you don't trip when there's a fire. But in the meantime, they're not enforcing the law, which is, uh, uh, actually, I get the print out here. It says, did you know since 2012, working smoking alarms are required in every bedroom of a home or dwelling? And this is 10 years ago, and I, I phoned number on, on Cara Party's sheet, uh, uh, Fire Prevention Division number, 5763905, and I just got to talk to the man there. who's very friendly, very helpful, understanding, and he said, yes, it is the law. There's supposed to be a, a smoking alarm in every bedroom. And I said, well, we don't have that. We just have the one in the hallway. And he, and, and he, and he apparently these guys at the fire department, they work and they know these all these landlords. And by landlords, I mean the real estate investment trust companies that own probably hundreds of buildings in Canada. So that's one of the ones I happen to be in. Okay. But why, are, why isn't the fire department enforcing the regulation on these landlords? I'm not, I'm not asking you, but I'm just throwing that question out there because maybe there's someone from the fire department listening in now. And if that's the case, wh you know, why aren't they enforcing the law upon the landlords, because they do come in once a year to check the smoke detectors in our building and the one in the, every apartment. But why aren't they making sure that their smoke alarms are in every bedroom, which they're not? And he said it is the law, and he said he was going to look into it because they work closely with all these companies. But, I mean, you know, nobody else should have to phone the fire department and, and ask them to do their job. And I'm not mad at anybody, but that's been on the books for 10 years. Uh, it's, not, it's not being enforced. A couple of things. Uh, I didn't know that was the case. And yep. it's one thing for these big uh, multi-unit uh, apartment buildings, you know, even if it was the annual inspection of the hallway smoke detector, and just a couple of random, you know, pick one apartment per floor just to ensure that they are installed. And I suppose the onus would be on the landlord as opposed to the tenant. But when we talk about bedrooms in uh, privately owned detached homes, for instance, what a monumental task. You need a, you need a raft of 10,000 inspectors to be yes. able to make sure that they're in everybody's bedroom in every home yep. in the province. But Absolutely. I didn't even know that was the law, to be honest. But a random inspection in an apartment building seems like something that's manageable. 
Yeah, well, you think the landlords themselves would know, know know all the provisions, sure. you know. And this is ten years ago, Patty, since 2012, and of course it goes on to list what a dwelling is, as if though we don't know what a dwelling is, you know, uh, any structure that contains cooking, eating, living, sleeping, uh, and so forth. Uh, a dwelling can refer to a house, apartment, condo, cabin, cottage, individual camp, and or boarding unit. Sure. So, like I say. Uh, why it's not enforced, I guess that's really my question. Now, I know what you're saying. They're not going to go check every dwelling in, in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. But, I mean, I guess it's on the landlord. How many landlords actually know that, that it's a, that it's a law? But that's been on the books since 2012. But, again, why isn't the fire department uh, regulating it, at least with the big apartment buildings? And there, there's lots of them here, you know. I just don't understand that. That's, what, that's what's throwing me off, right? I mean, I shouldn't have to phone them and tell them, Oh, yes, that's the law, they're supposed, and they're going to look into it now. So well, what's going to happen now? Are they going to go to the landlord and say, well, this is not being done, so we got to go in and check? Well, we'll give you a grace period of, say, three or four or five months before you install. But, I mean, that's it's not right. See? Something's not right there, Penny. I appreciate the issue and the time this morning. Uh, I would imagine when there's approvals given for tenancies, uh, large apartment buildings, condos, or otherwise, they're provided with the necessary applications and approvals and laws that they have to attend to and sprinkler systems and all the rest. So maybe it's just simply a matter of either oversight or willfully choosing not to do it. But uh, this is one that I could follow up on because I didn't even know that was a law, to be yeah. honest with you. But I appreciate you putting it in my Did mind this morning. you want me to give you the, the uh, information, like how to the contact information? Uh, sure, if you like. Oh, my God, just give me a second. I'm not too familiar with the... Or you can just zip it off in the form of an email. No, see, I don't have a computer. I got my, my neighbor downstairs to do this for me. Okay, do you have it in front of you now? Uh, God, I'm looking for it. Okay, it says here, if you have any specific questions about this regulation, contact Fire and Emergency Services Newfoundland Labrador by visiting H okay. HTTP, yeah. and then it says look, slash slash www.gov.com. NL. Oh, I know where to find that. That's okay. no problem. Yeah, if it's on the government website, I can navigate that pretty easy. Okay, me buddy. Well, thanks for your time, Patty. Thanks, Paul. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, break time. When we come back, Michael wants to talk about the doctor-related matters, shortages to be specific, and Carl Ridgely, he's the Ward 5 counselor here in the city of St. John's, there in the queue, and then you. Welcome back to the program. Just replying to a, uh, a query is if I knew what was happening with the uh, midget or the under-18 AAA Atlantic tournament taking place out of paradise at the Double Ice Complex. I do, as a matter of fact. The Pinnacle Growers, the provincial champions, they're playing at 2 p.m. versus the Halifax Max. And then this evening, the host, East Coast Blizzard, also play the Halifax Max at 8 p.m. Opening ceremonies at 7.30. All right, let's go to line number six. Michael, you're on the air. Yeah, how you doing, Patty? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Uh, I'm calling from Ontario. I phoned here a couple of times, right? Okay. And I'm phoning the... Just to see why is there so many uh, shortage of doctors in central Newfoundland? Because I grew up in Grand Falls, Windsor. And I noticed uh, the last doctor's given up her, she's uh, like given up her practice. And I thought I was home in October and there was a few people told me, even if you had a, to get a prescription, you got to go to the emergency ward and get it. Is that true? Well, I think that's a bit too broad for me to give a specific answer to. There are doctors leaving. Like, for instance, the province will say that there's been 36 additional doctors hired in that region by the Central Health Authority. But the problem is 45 have left. So we're still in a negative spot. So for some why communities... Are leaving? Why are so many leaving, though? 
Well, the, I guess there would be a bunch of reasons. Uh, some are retiring, some are moving off to different clinics, some are moving to different provinces. So, I'd, again, there's no one catch-all there. Yeah. But uh, are, they, are they doing anything about the situation? or? Well, like I say, they say they've hired 36 new doctors, and that comes from both the health authority, uh, Dr. Butler, and the province itself. So I would imagine, you know, again, I think we've really, we find ourselves in a spot here now where it's easy enough to blame one government, one politician, one policy or another, but we've got the uh, issues surrounding just how the high demand for healthcare professionals is becoming a real hunger games. It's hard to do it. I have doctor buddies that talk about the fact that they get approached all the time for newer, better opportunities, so-called greener pastures, because it's a competitive world out there. So when we talk about some of the word of mouth between doctors, uh, rate of pay, fee-for-service structure in the province, and maybe some of the smaller, more remote, or isolated communities, how attractive they may or may not be to a doctor, I think we've got an issue that's a bit more complicated than the government doesn't care. Because I, I think that's an easy thing to say when, you know, when you think about it out loud. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that they don't care. I just think it's really difficult. What do you think? Yeah, it's hard, but then I heard people saying they lost their, they didn't lose them, but the, their files, they can't find them, they're in storage somewhere. Their medical files is what I'm saying. Yeah, again, that's a, a, a couple of different issues on that front. Uh, some family doctors will give you a grace period to come collect your own medical records at no cost. Uh, others, uh, I think apparently some of the issue is that they will use a third party, and in this case is a company called DocuDavid in Ontario, where they send off your medical records to that organization. Then you have to pay a fee to get them back, which is nonsense to yeah. me. You know, when in yeah. fact, if we have doctors who are independent contractors that send their billing information to MCP, then at the same time, can we just make it a little bit easier to transfer all records to MCP? We just pay them a clerical fee, like 25 bucks or something to get them. Also, in different yeah. provinces, you can actually have access based on your own personal code to look at your own medical records online as part of the integrated digital system. So we've yeah. just, we're a little bit behind the curve here. I think we're doing a bit of antiquated work on that front. Yeah. Yeah, I just uh, I hear different stories from different people down there, and maybe, you know, uh, they're just going way out of whack with it. What do you think? Uh, again, that question's as wide as it is deep. Uh, I don't really know how to answer that question specifically. Yeah. Here, like, uh, if I go to my doctor, I only got to go there, and she gives me my prescription, and I could just get it in 15, 20 minutes. But then someone's telling me they got to go to the emergency, and, and the doctor got to uh, sign a signature for it, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's all I had to say there, Patty. Just want to uh, give my opinion, right? I appreciate you making time for the show. Okay, take care. You too, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, it's a tricky piece of business. Uh, get one in before we get to the news. Uh Let's see here. We'll ask Mr. Ridgely to wait for after the news, have an extended conversation. Uh, line one, Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Nice morning. Tis. Yeah. Listen, I'm going to give you a quick topic, is that right? The, with the doctors, I say the reason why we're, we're not getting no doctors down here, because you take out doctors across the Canada here, right? Now, someone could, could be retired or passed away, and when they passed away or retired, um, I imagine the doctors will stay up there until they come to this province. What do you think today? Say that again? Just say the doctors passed all across Canada, right? Whatever doctors up there. Just say someone passed away. 
Somebody got to take their place. Be be a doctor, you know what I mean? And some people they could be retired because you got all, all kinds of hospitals across Canada that is full of doctors, new doctors. Okay. See, that could be the problem too, right? That's what I was thinking. Well, we're getting no doctors there. So I know it's true, but I'm just thinking that's why we're not getting no doctors here. You know what I mean? Because we got, how many hospitals we got across Canada here? They're full with doctors. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's retiring or passed on. Anybody who's passed on, retired, well, you know what? You're going to put another doctor in another hospital. Good man, then, right? Uh, maybe. Yeah, anyway, forget that. Forget that. Anyway, uh, the veteran, uh, that's been doctored for years now. Uh, you think they should sell that and. Uh, Sell to another company and make a, a smaller ferry for the Fogo Island? Well, we just bought it. Yeah, they should, because Western Santa Fe, they're not using it. They're not because, using it? Yeah, they say they've broke down since came down here. It, it certainly spent a lot of time in dry dock, yeah. Yeah, well, Same you, with get the rid, you get rid of and build a ferry like, like the Flanders and give that to Fogo Island. I, I don't know what to say to that. We may have overbuilt those ferries. Um, That's right. But... Yeah, okay. Okay, another two quick topics. Don't take much of your time. Uh, okay, uh, the soul services there, that never went up at all. Into, uh, like, I know I got $200, but nothing went down to soul service checks. So they're talking about high cost living, and it's been money elsewhere. How come they're not putting extra money in people's pockets on soul services? Well, social services needs to be restructured anyway in this province. We. I think we've got, you know, sometimes people say there's too many people that are simply lazy and milking the system. We need to know who's on social assistance, why they're on social assistance, and how much money is going into people's pockets, uh, obviously. And I think that's even part of what we're talking about inside of the work that the health court is doing. So, yeah, the, the entire system, it was designed for a population and a reality of life decades ago versus keeping up with the times and understanding a little bit more about Who's falling through the cracks? Who requires the social safety net? So, yeah, I think some of those conversations are actually happening. You've seen a push with the consensus inside the House of Assembly to look at guaranteed basic income. You've seen references to that in the initial report coming from the health accord. Because even inside not just the affordability of fuel and groceries, insurance, and my telecom bill, we're also talking about the social determinants of health, which is the biggest and the highest price tag on individuals in Canada and certainly in this province. So, yeah, I think those conversations are actually happening. Yeah, but listen, if uh, if they're claiming about taxes, paying on taxes, putting taxes on booze and wherever, cigarettes, whatever, sure, it doesn't matter what he spends in store or hardware store, should taxes going back to the government anyway, so they're not really losing any money, really. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what that means. I'm mean, like saying they, they make enough taxes, we're taxed in this province, hand over face, and they, they can't solve what they're going to do. Yeah, we don't have a scarcity issue. We have a distribution issue. Uh, but, of course, revenues don't meet the needs for what the budgetary items are. Just look at the level of borrowing again this year. So, yeah, taxes continue to flow. And last year there was a, you know, a bit of an increase, even though there was a reduction in the amount of oil being produced. We saw an uptick in individual taxes, corporate taxes, mining royalties. So we had a little bit of good news on that front. So even when the price of oil is skyrocketing, price per barrel, we're not seeing the benefit like we thought we might because production numbers are just so far down compared to what yeah, they were yeah, in years past. Anyway, yeah, Jim, i got to get to the news. Thanks. Take good care. All right. All right, bye-bye. 
All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, one of the gentlemen vying to be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada is Jean Charest. He joins us in the queue, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number three. Here's one of the candidates vying to be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Jean Charest joins us this morning. Good morning, Mr. Charest. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning, Petty. Welcome to the program. I know we're going to talk about health care here, and one of the points that you're making in your newly announced initiatives is a hot, or pardon me, a $10 billion healthcare infrastructure fund to invest in hospitals and other you know, long-term care facilities and otherwise. Bricks and mortar is one thing. Staffing is quite another. It is. And on staffing, what we're also proposing is that we have a, a national recognized uh, system by which we recognize diplomas and qualifications so that people could move as seamlessly as possible between uh, different jurisdictions in the country and that we also enhance that Patty, by recognizing qualifications of immigrants that come into the country and rather than sending them back to do training that is uh, unnecessary because they've already been trained in another country that we recognize their credentials. And that's been done before. That's what I did in an agreement between France and Quebec for doctors and nurses and other healthcare uh, uh, providers. And, and it works very well. So, there was, you know, there's smart and intelligent things that we could do to make this healthcare system of ours work more efficiently. Nationally approved standards is something just just makes sense, right? Not because the paper, paper warfare and the time and the cost, we can't even get a doctor to come here to do a locum because of all of those issues. Does that require not only national policy, but provincial buy-in? Provincial buy-in is necessary, and uh, there's all sorts of ways of making that happen. But we need to take advantage, Patty, of, uh, I'm sad to say, this COVID episode we've had, which has dearly tested our healthcare system. We have not looked very good. And if you look at recent studies done, international studies about the performance of Canada's healthcare system across the board, we're, uh, we're not doing well. And, and yet we have always viewed healthcare as being a national value and treasure and, and what our healthcare systems in, in trouble. And notwithstanding the extraordinary work and effort of those who work in the healthcare system that I salute, I mean, they've been real heroes to the, the pandemic. Coming out of it now, we need to have a hard look at how it, what, what we've been through. We need to draw the lessons. You know, one of the lessons is that had, had we had a healthcare system that was better prepared, we would not have had to impose so many restrictions on Canadians. We could have opened up more easily and and had a lot uh, more freedom, but we, we didn't have that. Nowhere in the country did we have that ability because our system was really run at capacity. And so uh, what I'm proposing in this, by the way, is to change the Canada Health Act to give the provinces more freedom to innovate, have the private sector participate. And, and by the way, I want to point out so that everyone knows, continue to be a single payer. So no one listening today is going to put their hand in their pocket to pay for services. We already pay through it through taxes anyway, but that will not change. What will change is the ability that we will give the provinces will untie their hands to innovate, find ways to better deliver more rapidly, more efficiently, have the private sector participate. A good example is that we could take, you know, knee and hip operations out of hospitals, put them in clinics, do things like that and allow the hospital to really deal with the heavier caseloads that uh, that would come their way, and that would have a better distribution of care, more efficient, and less costly, actually. 
So uh, elaborate a little bit more, if you can, about incentivizing Canadian healthcare entrepreneurs and private providers. So you say no one's going to have to put their hand in their pocket, but when we have a private provider, how does that private provider get compensated if it's not directly from me or just an increase possibly or in healthcare transfers or taxes or what have you? Give us a better understanding. Okay, I'll give you an example. You open a clinic and uh, your doctors who are specialized in knee and hip operation, you sign a, an agreement with the government that says I'm going to do uh, 10,000 operations uh, a year or, or no, uh, 2,000 operations a year. I'm going to charge you on average this amount for the operation. The government will say, fine, I'm going to send 2,000 cases a year to your clinic. <clears throat> you're going to operate the clinic, own the building, the operating room. You're going to pay for the staff, and I'm going to pay you X amount per operation. Your job is to deal with that patient from A to Z. From the moment they come in to the moment they're operated, the moment they're hospitalized or may stay in the clinic uh, for a few days if they have to, to rehabilitation. And it will be your job to make sure that the, the outcome is the one that is sought and you're going to be held accountable for that. The patient doesn't pay a, a single penny more than they would have had they gone to the hospital. But you have what you have is a much more efficient operation, Patty. You have doctors who will do that because they know they do it all the time. They're more efficient. They're more specialized. The patient gets better care. It's done more rapidly. You free up spaces in the hospital to be able to handle heavier cases that deserve that are, are need hospital uh, care. So that's that's the way it could operate. You also talk about healthcare transfer dollars. There's been a top of some $87 billion in last year. That's part of it. Where do you suggest healthcare transfer should be, percentage-wise and in annual increases? It used to be 50%. When the Medicare system was implemented, it was the Fed carried 50%. They whittled, whittled that down to 20%. And in the, in the 1990s, the, the Christian government cut cash transfers to the provinces on health care 40% patty in a single swoop and that had a very destabilizing effect on our health care system throughout the country and I don't want to see that happen again so in 2004 the Council of the Federation at the time Danny Williams was premier negotiated a 10-year agreement with the Martin government to increase funding at 6% a year we recognize the principle of asymmetrical federalism and the idea, this was after the Roy Romano report that the Martin government had ordered, the idea was to increase funding for up to 25%. It has since gone down. And now the provinces are asking to move it up to 35%. It is a legitimate request. It doesn't mean that that can be done overnight, but we need to work towards an increase in federal funding. But before we do that, Patty, it just makes sense that, A, we make a, a very real effort to learn what we need to learn from the COVID episode, which was revealing about our healthcare system, mm -hmm. consult the provinces and territories on how what we need to change in the Federal Health Act to be able to get them the resources, but also the freedom to be able to do what they do. And then we deal with the funding. Very last one. I know you have to run. The most recent work done by the Senate Committee looking at universal drug coverage, led by Dr. Eric Hoskins. We've reviewed this many, many times. It comes with a whopping big price tag up front, but we know Canadians are making choices between food and the prescriptions, taking half doses. There's millions of Canadians who can't afford the, prescribe, the prescriptions they've been offered by doctors. Where does your, what's your own personal thought on universal pharmacare? The best system I've seen in the country is the one that the, my government put in Quebec, which has a co-costing system with the private sector, again, private sector participation. And uh, it, uh, it supports private uh, sector insurance, but for 
low-income individuals, then the government uh, comes in and covers uh, the cost. So there's an intelligent, I find, if you don't mind me saying it, Patty, I think it's the best system in the country. Now, uh, as we look ahead, one of the things we now have to factor in is how do we, for the future, make sure that we have a supply chain of pharmaceuticals that will allow us to uh, have the drugs we need if we have another pandemic or another crisis. And that that is now part of the bigger picture of how we're going to manage our access to drugs. Yeah, and whittle away patent protection so we get some generics on the market sooner than we see today. Uh, Mr. Shrey, I know you have to run, sir. I appreciate your time. Uh, Talk again soon, and good luck. And, Patty, don't forget, you have until the 3rd of June to get your membership card to the Conservative Party of Canada and go to jeanchereau.ca to support me. And I want to thank you for that. I appreciate your time. <laughs> thank you, Patty. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Carl Ridgely is back in the queue. He's Ward 5 Councillor here in the City of St. John's. Oh, welcome back. Let's go. Line number five. Say good morning to Ward 5 Councillor here in the City of St. John's. That's Carl Ridgely. Good morning, Carl. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's it? How are you doing? I'm doing okay this morning. How are you doing? Not too bad. It's a lovely, sunny Thursday here in, uh, in St. Anne's. Looking forward to getting out in it this afternoon. Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, i tell you what, the reason why I'm calling now is just uh, this is construction season again in the city of St. John's, and uh, going in through Kilbride and through the Ghouls, we got some major construction happening again this year, and I just wanted to let the residents know that, you know, while the contractors are going to try to maintain the roads and keep them open, when you're, you know, when you're digging down upwards of six meters in some areas of, of the construction zone, you know, safety of the workers is imperative, and that it might, you know, you might incur some uh, detours over the course of the next three or four months. So it's, uh, you know, like I said, like I said earlier, safety is paramount, and uh, you know, detours are an inconvenience, but. Nobody wants anything tragic to happen, so we, you know, we we got to keep the contractor safe. Absolutely, and you know, it's not the flag person's fault that traffic has been slow. So give these men and women a break. And there's rules on the book about how you're supposed to react when you see first responder vehicle coming and or people who are doing this road work. So keep that in mind as we get through the construction season. But interestingly, in your ward, it's a little bit different than many of the other wards in the city when we talk about infrastructure. So I know we're talking about road construction here, but even stories where people are getting a bill uh, popped in their mailbox for $10,000 when they see some sewer upgrades and what have you. You know, give us a better understanding of just how different it is in Ward 5 versus other parts of the city, whether it be the provision of water, sewer, and all those types of things. Well, you know, going back, I'll I'll go back 18 years ago when when water and sewer went in front of my property. You know, I got my bill from the city of St. John's. Uh, you know, the upgrades, while the city and the province and, and federally a lot of money goes into it, there's still costs that are incurred. And uh, to have the service, you know, there's an expectation there that, that you know, to hook up the water and sewer, that it, it's it's the resident's responsibility to, to some extent. So some of, the, some of the costs that are incurred by residents, you know, is unfortunate. But, uh, it, you know, it's, it's there. It's a bit different when you're into a new subdivision. Because all those costs are incurred by the developer sure. under construction. So when you're buying, when you're buying your property in Airport Heights or Kemmonters or Southlands or Shea Heights or wherever, if if a developer is in there, all those costs are already incurred in your building lot. Uh, so it's different. You know, those costs are you know are incurred by the residents. It's frustrating to get a bill for eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars, and you know the sad part is it's based on the frontage, and 
and some of the frontages, you know, in our area are, are huge. You know, 125, 150 feet, 200 feet is not uncommon in War 5. So, you know, it can get costly, uh, but hopefully, you know, hopefully they can, uh, you know, we can work through it and, and people are not too disgruntled by the bills that they do get. Yeah, because, I mean, some people were simply caught off guard, right? Didn't anticipate it at all. And I think a couple of them were able to work out an actual payment schedule that's manageable with the city, if I remember correctly. Uh, anything else you want to discuss this morning while we have you, Carl? No, just just one thing to, to go into that. I, the city the city will work with the residents, and there is a payment schedule that, that, that can be put in place. And some some of the costs are interest-free, so, you know, you, you're paying a monthly, a monthly amount, and it could be up as high as 15 or 20 years, so... The city will work with the residents, uh, and you know, ho- hopefully, hopefully we can we can work through those problems and issues. You know, the big the biggest concern and the, the biggest issue with it all is that you know, right now there's raw, raw sewage still going to to the ocean, and you know, federally we we're being regulated to 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 stop that that practice. So, you know, the construction got to happen, and by doing that, it's going to free up more land. People will be able to build on their properties and. Uh, and hopefully the system can take whatever the rules can put into it, basically. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah, that wastewater issue, I mean, that's a federal mandate, and that date has already come and gone. We are nowhere near compliant in this province, and those numbers that municipalities need to spend on improving their wastewater treatment is way out of whack. I don't know where that's going to land. We had a city manager, I think, out in Dover, that was threatened with uh, by law enforcement not so long ago. So that conversation, it's kind of... a taking a back seat to many other issues facing the people of the province but boy oh boy the amount of money required to do those upgrades unmanageable oh. in full for most municipalities oh w- w- without a doubt and, and and there's no different with cities and johns yeah, oh yeah we're, we're the capital city but, uh, but you know listen it's uh, the costs that are being incurred you know even talk of having to put a second uh, facility down by, by riverhead it's just you know the costs are, are enormous and uh you know, obviously, there's going to have to be some federal federal help there for sure. There's no doubt for all municipalities. Yeah, we've done done some cost sharing uh, for waste treatment here for that service Paradise, Mount Pearl, and St. John's, and thankfully, the feds actually stepped up to the plate and covered the increased cost of those uh, those upgrades that had to be done, as opposed to simply a percentage. So that was welcome news here in the city. I appreciate the time, Carl. Thanks for the call. One more thing, Patty, before I go, uh, the growlers. I, I just want to mention them because it's a. Uh, their playoff run is starting tomorrow night, yep. and, and and you know something. Listen, we got five local fellas on that team. You got Melindy O'Brien, Noel, Marcus, and there's one more. But you know something, I'd like to see that stadium, the Mary Brown Centre, full from here on out for the rest for the rest of the playoffs to show some support to not just our local fellas, but but you know the fellas that are playing from all over the world. Uh, you know, 2019 was a great run, and. Uh, and you know something, if, if anybody that knows hockey or saw it, I'm after watching NHL and AHL. And I tell you what, that 2019 run to the Kelly Cup Finals and winning it was an amazing game of hockey. And I'm expecting nothing but the same for the next three or four weeks. And hopefully we can bring another another Kelly Cup home. And uh, good luck to the Growlers and, and everybody involved in the organization. Let's fill the Mary Brown Center. Yeah, Marcus, Marcus Power. I don't know if you mentioned Zach O'Brien, but he would be the fifth, I think, that maybe didn't make your list. One of the best offensive players in the ECHL. Yeah, go Growlers. Absolutely. In, Patty, I tell you what, I, you know, I had, to, I had to, to be fortunate enough to see those kids play from Adam right up because my oldest actually 
played defense partner with James Malindi. He played against Marcus and Zach. And you know something, listen, they've been special players since they're, they're five and six years old and, and they're showing us now what they can do on the, on the professional level, there's no doubt. It would have been a, a cosy spot to be playing the defence partner, Rob Melindy, because that boy is as hard as nails. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what now, listen, I'm no slight to my, to my young fella, but yeah, the, there's no doubt James was a, a big boy today and he was a big boy then and, and he... Uh, he helped. There was a few players on the team that helped. I can guarantee you the smaller ones, but uh, it was fun watching, and it's certainly fun watching them now. I can guarantee you. Yeah, absolutely. So go Growlers, go! I'm going to take in some action for sure. And of course, it's two Dean McDonald owned teams as we played Trois Rivières uh, to yeah. begin our playoff run. Uh, good to have you on the show, Carl. Enjoy the rest of your yeah. day. Thank you, and have a good one. All the best. Bye bye. Yeah, Melendi's a good one, good leader, good captain. And, of course, between the prowess offensively of Power and Noel and especially O'Brien, holy moly, Zach O'Brien has got magic hands. He really does. You know, when you go and watch a game like the Growlers or a league like the Growlers, you just wonder how good do you have to be to get to play in the American League? How amazing must you have to be to get to play in the National Hockey League? Because there's a lot of great talent on the ice, you know, between the caliber of skating and shooting and passing and execution. It's there. So, again, if Zach O'Brien's not good enough to be in the American League or the NHL, that just goes to show you how incredible the boys are at the top levels, including a couple of our own. Young Newhook playing on a team that's got a legitimate shot at the Stanley Cup in Colorado. And, of course, Dawson had a great year in New Jersey. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're going to get some response to a caller we heard earlier, Dot, talking about the doctor shortages and some comments coming from the president of the NLMA, Dr. Susan McDonald. And then George wants to pick up on the conversation regarding smoke detectors, and then we'll speak with you. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Hey, welcome back to the show. And the name that maybe got left out of the mix, of course, on the Growlers, Tyler Boland, right, who's made his way between Manitoba and St. John's. Okay, let's go to line number three. Dr. Phil Earl, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, thank you for taking my call. <clears throat> uh, today and yesterday, I've cut partially conversations with uh, some doctors talking about a the health system, healthcare system, or the shortage of doctors, uh, retention and recruitment. And uh, I just want to, I'm not uh, critical, but to be uh, constructive in my remarks, you know, I'm a retired physician. And here in Carabineer, in the last number of years, this hospital uh, has lost uh, a number of uh, specialists, uh, I think, uh, obstetricians, uh, a couple of medicine men with pathology and this type of stuff. We've lost four or five of them out of our hospital. But I knew, I've known three of them personally. One was a good friend of mine, and uh, not going to give any names. But I was rather surprised when I asked a question. I'll give you an example of one. A couple of years ago, there was a wonderful man that came here. He came from England, and he had been an internist in England for 17 years. That'll tell you, you know, it's a high standard of medicine over there. And you don't get to be an internist over there unless you're, you're, you're top-notch, you know. And beside that, he had a Ph.D. in biochemistry. The man was brilliant, and he had the combination of compassion and intelligence and cared about patients and was brilliant in internist. And so he said he was here about a year, a little over a year or so, and I he said, he's leaving. And I was really upset about it. And so I asked him, I said, well, what is it, that, you know, is it that you're just kind of remote here to be out in, in the rural Newfoundland, or is it the cold weather in the wintertime, or is it the people and so on? No, he said, it's the opposite of that. 
he said the people here, we love the people here. The, the, the foreign directors that have come here really fit in. You know, there's no discrimination. And, uh, I'd like to have a uh, wonderful place to live. I said, that has nothing, the weather has nothing to do with it. He said, it's the way, and the word is correctly, because I don't want to be negative in my comment, but it is a criticism. Try to be constructive about it. He said, it's the way the healthcare system uh, the protocol setters, the, the, the managers of the, of the healthcare system, not the, not the primary caregivers, he said, is the way we're treated, in a sense, disrespected. The, 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 the work hours, the weekends, on calls in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. And in a sense, like, I'm going to put words in, in his mouth, but to say, like, you know, there's not a respect for shown by the head of the healthcare system towards some of these specialists and doctors and went to Ontario or went somewhere else where a lot of different circumstances and less hours and all the rest. And I, I was really, I thought, you know, because there's isolation, doctors didn't like to be here, but they like it. They love being here. The foreign doctors that have come here, but it's because the way the pressure is on them, uh, the time, the burnout, uh, uh, so many rotating days and all this kind of stuff. And that's why, in this particular case here, from these people, why this, the retention is bad. Now, you had the Dr. Andre yesterday talk from the Central Health and so on, and and we've had that on. We've had meetings here in Carbonier a few years ago when they all came out and talked about our hospital, why we lose them. And we really had to get up and walk out. I couldn't, couldn't, because... Uh, to put it in a nice way, uh, the, the Kierkegaard, the great philosopher, the Danish philosopher, he said one time, I've seen the enemy, it is myself. Well, part of the problem, the people that are running the show, giving the orders, they're not primary health care givers. They're not nurses, technicians, and doctors. These people are magnificent. We're short, short of nurses, short of technicians, short of doctors, and they're overworked, and they're wonderful people, 99% of them. But uh, who runs the system and gives the order and calls the protocols and the time and all this stuff is, is, the, is the directors and managers. And part of the problem, they create part of the problem. I mean, if you work for somebody, you know, at this level, you're highly educated. It's one thing you like to, you like to have respect and dignity shown you as a physician, as a nurse, as a technician for all the work you do, given to people, you like to have a feeling of being respected and appreciated. And a lot of times when you work someone so long hours, well, that's not appreciation and not giving them dignity. And this is part of the problem that I found out from talking to these specialists as to why they left here. And it's, 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 it's really, really too bad. We need, we need these interns. We need more specialists in St. John's. It's obvious. You know, I'm not, I can't speak for all the specialists in St. John's, but we need a bunch of them there. We need family doctors. And they, you know, there it is anyway. I just wanted to give this for the public for you to hear in case it hasn't been stated that way. Well, I've added that to the mix a couple of times when I say things along this line, is that doctors talk to doctors. And if doctors were disgruntled working for one health authority or another, that makes it very unappealing for the next person considering moving to this province to one community or another. So absolutely plays a role, which is why I think in the exit interviews, we have to be blatantly and patently honest about exactly why a doctor's leaving. If there were 
retiring, they're retiring. If they got a better offer to work at, at Sick Kids in Toronto, okay. But if they're leaving because they feel disrespected by the health authority, then that's got to set off alarm bells. we got to factor that in because Central in particular has had a couple of issues over the years. You know, there's a couple of radiologists come to mind about some of the shenanigans that went on and how they were treated so disrespectfully and unprofessionally. If that's not a factor, then I'll be monkey's uncle. So we've got to be very mindful of that. And that's where I know we allowed the regional health authorities to deal with the day-to-day operations. But that's where things like a, a toxic workplace is one thing if we're talking about Mary Brown Center. It's quite another one we're talking about in healthcare. And if that's causing us uh, problems in recruiting and retaining doctors, then that's where the minister's responsibility really amps up. I know it's not a day-to-day operations thing for Minister Hag or whoever's going to be the Minister of Health and Community Services, but if we've got that as a prevalent common theme that's keeping doctors away and ha- causing doctors to leave, we've got to deal with that right away because emotions and human nature and uh, negative personal interactions they just don't belong when we're talking about a bedside manner kind of uh, issue well i agree with that let me just say this in closing the word respect is you know i was a physician for 20 odd years and uh, i just say to you you work hard and you give it your all and one thing you want from the people around you you want you, you want to feel respect, you know. You want to feel this taken because you you put your life, life and time and compassion out to help people. And the, and the doctors, you know, there's there's the, the the people that they work for. Well, they're, they're the top of the chain, you know. They list, you know, they and 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 they from the people the healthcare system. I want to be careful. I don't want to be negative saying this, but there's, in many cases I've been told, told they're not respected. They don't get this feeling from the people that are so-called abortion. Now, they don't come on and talk to us, open line talk about because their employer, which is the healthcare system bosses, hear this. And they make it difficult on them. They do things, you know, and it should never be that way. As far as I'm concerned, there's not enough respect shown for doctors in general, and that's why there's a recruitment problem maybe also in Overland. Anyway, I appreciate the time to express this point to you, Pat, and thank you. No problem, Dr. Earl. You know, same thing in any workplace. If I didn't feel like I got any respect here in this building, then I wouldn't be long for this building. So I think it, it extends itself across the board. But when we have a distinct problem with healthcare professionals and getting them in the fold, becomes even bigger deal because that has a ripple effect throughout the entirety of the community. It would impact nobody if I left this job, but it impacts everybody if the doctors leave a community. I uh, appreciate the time, sir. Touche. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, I mean, respectful workplace is, you know, obviously a big deal. Uh, let's go to line number one. George, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, George. Yeah, and let's talk about smoke detectors. Fire away. Yeah, okay, so smoke detectors come into effect on 2012. That was for new installations or upgrades since 2012, right? Yeah, the buildings got grandfathered in if they were already built before the, that date. That's right. Yes, like like everything else in new codes or new rules and regulations. So any upgrades, they will be putting in smoke detectors, right, usually. Yeah, that, that makes uh, sense to me. And, you know, someone said I have to upgrade the electrical, but that's only if you have a centralized system of fire detection or smoke detection, as opposed to even, I don't even know if the law applies to maybe if they just had battery operated, so they didn't have to have a massive electrical upgrade and a centralized ra- uh, uh, detection point system. So, yeah, you're right. The grandfather issue is probably what plagues that uh, fellow, Michael, I believe was his name, who called about it. Yeah, so anything that's upgraded since 2012 also adds smoke detectors in the bedrooms, right? Yep, makes sense. Yes. Okay, let's talk about potholes now on the roads. Fire away. 
Anyone driving like tourism in Bonavista area now is a big thing, as we all know. But anyone that'll go drive from the Clarenboy area down to Cape Bonavista, I don't know what they're going to be driving in because, I mean, there's potholes there that uh, is just ridiculous. I mean, it's very unsafe. I mean, you're dodging, you're twisting your car or your vehicle all over the road trying to escape them. It's a very dangerous situa- situation. The road should almost be closed. I mean, the potholes are so bad. I don't know what the government is doing with all the tax money that they're getting from gas. I mean, they can't even fill in the potholes. If the roads are rough and need new pavement, I mean, that's one thing. But when you got holes in the road where you could take, say, uh, you say like a case of a dozen beer or a case of beer size and put down in the pothole, I mean, it's a bit much on the main road, don't you think so? Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes that orange bag of sand is better than the uh, cold patch they put in that just gets tossed after a dozen vehicles go over it. But the province brings in way more in gas tax than it spends on road work. Way, way more. Double or triple what they actually spend on bridges and roads and, and the like. So, uh, you know, part of our problem for the longest while was... You know, I'm sick of hearing people tell me, well, we have a different freezing thaw. No, we don't. We're in a northern country. Freezing thaw is part of it in most of Canada. But we have... Um, we have a couple of issues with the shortened paving season. Now they've done something about that with the early tenders, but we just have a hard time keeping up with the roads because we've got a lot of roads going to some fairly sparsely populated areas. There, I mean, if you add up the, the kilometers of roads in this province and the match it to the paving season, there's a reason why we can't keep ahead of it all because I don't think it matters where you live. Everybody in every part of the province will say the roads are terrible where I live, and they're right. Yeah, well, I think the potholes like that should be filled even with the pavement patch or Class A or something. And the side of the roads are ridiculous. I mean, you're supposed to pull over if you see the ambulance coming. But it's very dangerous to pull over in a lot of spots when you've got holes in the side of the road, right? Oh, sure it is, George, yeah. And sometimes we talk about beating up the suspension and my, my rims and stuff, but for a lot of these problem areas, it's a safety issue. It's a safety issue, big time. Yep. And as far as I'm concerned, it's not too much to, for them to fill in those puddles. I mean, you, we should not have be looking at those puddles for two months before they're filled in. And when you get to Bonavista, the government road going through Bonavista is terrible. They're ridiculous, right? I mean, it's hot in tourism. Oh, my God, I don't know what to do. Like the other day, I was listening to your show, and he said three things at tourism tourists talks about when they come to Newfoundland but the, the roads wasn't mentioned the potholes I think is is probably number one in my view that uh, <laughs> tourists talks about is what they got to drive over to get to Bonavista is ridiculous I mean they're beating everything to pieces when it comes to vehicles and that right yeah fair enough we could probably add that in if they think the roads are unlike anything they've ever seen they probably will bring that experience home and tell their buddies you're probably right on the money there George Yes, and Bonavista itself is a disaster. It's been a disaster for years with the potholes and the side the roads. There's, it's just ridiculous. They're talking tourism, and it's not okay. that much money to fill in a few potholes. I mean, you know, I mean, I know it costs a lot of money to do pavement if it's rough, but that's a different thing when you got potholes on in the roads that, uh, like I said, you can fit a dozen beer down in or or something of that nature, you know. Understood. Point taken, George. I appreciate the time. Okay, thank you. Take care. All right. right. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Pearl. You're on the air. Okay. I'm looking for 
for a cat. It's my it's my cat. Okay. My daughter's had it actually. It um, it never goes outside, but it's gone a week now, and and that's the cat hasn't come back. So I wanted to see if anyone out there that would see a cat like uh, her name is Sparky. From where where are we talking about? Where's Sparky from? Uh, Farrell Drive. Farrell Drive. Okay. Okay, so if you see Sparky, you want to describe what Sparky looks like? She looks like, like there's inner tail, like, it's like rings of weight going through it. Okay. And she got, she's sort of a horns, and she, oh my God, she's a bit fluffy, but and then her face is horns, and she got a bit of weight down on her belly, and her down on her face, right? Well, hopefully uh, Sparky comes home ASAP. Do you want to give us your number or something, Pearl? Yeah. Zero eight four zero. Okay, fingers crossed. Good luck. I hope I get get my, I hope I get cat back. Me too. Okay, then thank you. You're welcome, Pearl. Bye bye. I wish we had a bit more time for this call, but today is the traditional date to says when Romulus and Remus, two uh, twin brothers, founded Rome in 753 BC. Join us on line number five. The head of the classics department at Memorial University is Dr. Luke Roman. Good morning, Dr. Roman. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. I'm happy to have you on. wish we had more time. But talk us through the events that led to the founding of the city of Rome. Right. So, first of all, events, we should call it a, the stories. Because <laughs> the, Rome, the Romans uh, didn't have you know, great records of the time when they thought their city was founded, which is you know, some eight centuries earlier um, than they were you know, uh, making up a lot of these stories uh, but this the stories go that the these divine twin brothers Romulus and Remus um, decided they were going to found a city there's a whole unpleasant backstory to to, to that <laughs> but um, they decided to found their city and they chose two hills uh, Rom- Remus said I'm gonna I think the Aventine Hill is great Romulus said the Palatine each stood on their hill and they said well let's wait for bird signs and the birds will tell us because they believe the birds gave signs of divine will uh, who gets to be the founder of the city Remus got six birds uh, first and Romulus got 12 birds a little later so they had this classic fight of brothers you know birds first more birds Romulus seems to have won um, but then in a subsequent dispute in some versions of the myth he kills his own brother uh, there become by becoming the first king of Rome uh, so for the Romans uh, this was a complicated birthday <laughs> it was a day on which um, one brother lived and uh, the other was killed and I'm, I'm trying to draw some connections because my mind gets quite scattered come this time of the morning. So yep. mother was a vessel virgin, if I remember correctly. Yep. Someone, Sylvia, possibly? Yeah, that's right. Rhea, Sylvia. And the story, that's the, the unpleasant backstory, which is that there's, you know, another two brothers. So Amulius is king, um, uh, but he's driven out by the bad brother Numitor. Uh, Numitor then doesn't want... Uh, Amulius's daughter, Rhea Silvia, to have children, because those kids grow up, they're going to want vengeance. Um, and so he makes her a Vestal Virgin. Seems like an airtight plan. Uh, <laughs> you know, however, uh, the, the god Mars thought otherwise, and they, she became the lover of the god Mars. And that's why the, the, these twins, Romulus and Remus, were born. They're semi-divine. They're the children of Mars, which means, you know, that Rome has almost divine blood in a sense. Um, Numitor tries to get rid of them by throwing them in the Tiber. He's like sort of, you know, I'm not killing them, but I'm just letting them the Tiber decide. 
Um, but the Tiber, because it's Rome's river, says, wait a second, these two are important, gently drops them on the side of the river, um, where famously then they're, they're taken care of and, and suckled by this she-wolf. Um, and then eventually they get kind of adopted by a shepherd and they grow up and learn their history, take vengeance, drive out um, Numitor, and that's when they decide to make their own city. So the whole thing is a is a is a is a fairly uh, dark story of <laughs> family tension and and violence. Uh, Rome is a terrific city and one of the busiest places I've ever been in this world. Mm. Uh, just give us some understanding how they landed on April twenty first. Is there any historical yeah. context there, or is this a, a traditional date that was plucked out of midair? Well, again, this is the Romans making sense of their own history in retrospect. So there was, uh, you know, a festival on April 26th called the Perilia in honor of an interesting god named Pales, who is sometimes male, sometimes female, uh, god of shepherds and flocks. And um, this was a sort of a purification ceremony. You purify the flocks so that everything will go well in the, in the coming year. And over time, it seems that they merged that with the idea of foundation of Rome, that the foundation of Rome and the Perilia kind of happened at the same time. Um, and that the, the sort of ritual boundary drawing when Romulus created the first boundaries of the city uh, coincided with the uh, the sort of some of the ceremonies of the Perilia, so it's it's and it ended up on that day because you know there's always a process whereby cultures peoples are, are trying to um, kind of make sense of of their own story uh, to draw connections as it were. Who should I lean on, Pictor or Plutarch? <laughs> What's that? Who should I lean on for information, Pictor or Plutarch? Oh my goodness! I didn't know. I didn't think we'd get this technical. I, I would have studied a bit more for this interview. Put it this way: whatever your answer was would have been way over my head anyway. To be yeah, honest, I mean, I, I would if I would start with Livy for the really classic stories, uh, and there's a, there's a, a fun bit in in, in Ovid's Fasti as well. Um, but Fabius Pictor and Plutarch are also, uh, um, you know, good ancient ancient authors that, that can be brought in so i might be misremembering all this uh, stuff but yep. plutarch is the life of romulus right right okay uh this has been okay. fascinating hopefully again in the future we can talk some classics and roman antiquities or what have you with you again dr roman i really appreciate your time oh thanks a lot it's it's great that you could have me good stuff talk again soon yeah. thank you dr yeah. luke roman the head of classics at mun all right good stuff we're out of time we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye <laughs>